Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. I'm really excited about today's show. Politics is the name of the game, and this close to the election with early voting now open. First up, we touch base with Kiwi abroad Trevor Loudon, and we'll discuss his new video talking about the history of the Green Party. And I can almost guarantee that we'll drift off into whatever is happening in the US. Following Trevor, I'm trying something new. We have invitations out to all the parties looking likely to make it back into the House, and we want to talk to their key female candidates on the issues, on how they see the campaign. The calls went out, and New Zealand First were the ones to answer. I welcome Casey Costello, Erica Harvey, and Kirsten Murphy for a roundtable on why you should be putting your vote with New Zealand First in this year's election. Marty will join me for Media Matters and we'll talk about the week in politics, media and the news that catches our eye. And if we have time, I'll finish things off with Woke News of the Week. Time to dive into the mailbag now and catch up on your feedback. Bloody brilliant, Marie. I was tickled pink with the way you signed off this week's Woke News of the Week segment with Winston's definition of woke, priceless, love your show, from Liza Berry. Hi, Marie. Enjoyed catching up your interview with Helen. She's awesome. I really related to her interview with Rodney. It touched on so many aspects of my early years. Isn't it funny how when you've been through awful things in your childhood, it can spur super protective and valuable perspectives out of what effects go on for our little people and others appear to lack insight or thought of. Our school finally made changes this year to its RSE after a few of us kept on at them when some of the 10 and 11-year-olds were given some explicit material the year prior. The program they've gone with is Informed and Empowered Student Program by our kids online, and then they finally held a community meeting about it. They have now had some decent moves towards communicating regularly with our school community. 
I'm not sure why this is such a big ask in the first place, and it took so much time and energy from the handful of parents. Shameful, there weren't more parents feeling more strongly about the youngsters being exposed and off the back of our efforts like WTF. I can see you're exasperated. This program they have implemented seem to be a far better option than what the ministry was pushing. I'm currently finding out if their program goes on for more than a year, that looks like that it does, so I'm not sure what material the school will use after this year is done. If more of us suggest alternative options to these schools, your school can opt out of the ministry's filth and look at other avenues on offer. Sometimes it takes a while of consistent effort to make the board see and move in a better direction, but it's worth doing if your kids have almost left the system and it will help all the little ones making their way through the nonsense. Thank you, Marie, for your team and your team for such quality interviews and information for the people. You're a glowing treasure. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Hi, Marie. Love listening to you and Rodney. Please bring Di Landy back on. Oh, believe me, we've got Di booked. Don't panic. So thank you so much for all your feedback. Again, 2057 is the text number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. We love getting it. As the spring sunshine dawns over the farmhouse courtyard, the sounds of can be heard. Whatever is going on. Oh dear. Chippy pork is laid low. It appears not even all the drench in the world can save our chippy from the malady he now finds himself in. Tucked up in his cosy bed with plump feather pillows from the chickens he's plucked, Chippy was visited by Squealer. It's not fair, Squealer. I'm up to date with all the drenching. How on earth could I have caught the sickness again? <laughs> Sniffled Chippy. I've the campaign to win, Squealer. Squealer looked sheepishly from the doorway, paid not to get too close, just in case. I don't know what to tell you, mate, except buck up, buddy, because the sun'll come out tomorrow. And he turned on his trotter and departed to find lunch and try to avoid the sheep who were having problems of their own unfolding. Elections are a busy time for the sheep, as they follow the pigs around, making sure their bleating is on message. Correct messaging means more feed. But as the new week starts, an unexpected arrival of the truck to the meatworks has the sheep scarpering. A culling is taking place, and the fleece is flying faster than a fatty mutton chop burning on a barbecue. It appears that all the extra feed from the pigs during the Great Sickness was a ploy to fatten up the oblivious ovine, and with the day of reckoning here, a number of rotund rams are loaded onto the truck, in shock at their sudden departure and ultimate demise. And as the truck pulls out of the Aotearoa farm gate, Squealer breezes past, bacon and egg pie on his trotter singing, when I'm stuck with a day that's gay and lonely, I just stick out my snout and I grin and I say, the sun will come out tomorrow, so you better be gone by tomorrow. Come what may. It's not only the sheep that are feeling the gloom. 
Davy Piglet is also packing a bit of a sad, as my old mum would say. It appears that Oinky Lux has been cheating on him. Well, that's how the dejected Davy sees it. Oinky's decision to meet with Winnie Ben and welcome him around the farmhouse table after the election, if successful, has gone down like the proverbial cup of cold sick, and our petulant piglet is now feeling rather puce. What does that old megalomaniacal mule have that I don't? cries Davy. I'm young, vigorous, full of quips and great ideas. I'm not a patch on that demented old donkey. It appears the jealous belligerence by the peevish piglet has left many of the animals on the farm jaded, as our piglet's star started to wane. One cannot be too sure. Even all of Winky's reassurance doesn't appear to quell Davy's frustrations towards the old donkey. So, in a fit of, if you can't beat them, copy them, Davy announced that he would consider discussion on the farm lockdown and drenching campaign during the Great Sickness. That will stick it to the old donkey, who has won favour of many of the chickens. Little does our Davy know that he is a dollar short and many, many days too late. Winnie Ben, meanwhile, has been spotted in and around the barn, visiting pens and sheds, gleaming smile, even after a run-in with a well-shorn ewe and a young ram. Winnie just swished his tail as if flicking away an errant fly. So as the sheep looked skittish and the pigs perturbed at Winnie's likely return, he just kept smiling and swishing looking forward to hopefully very soon be back in the farmhouse, as if only to stop Squealer singing that bloody song. Because the sun'll come out tomorrow! Make sure you tune in next week for more adventures from Aotearoa Farm, exclusively here in Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome. Of course, you are here with Counterculture with Marie on RCR. It's with great pleasure I welcome back to Counterculture Trevor Loudon, writer and political commentator. Hey, Trevor, how are you? I'm doing great, Marie. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. And we're getting sort of to the pointy end of elections both here and, oh, it's what, only about... Well, I think January, late January, you reckon the primaries? Yeah, the primaries in the there? States, the, yeah, not yes, far away. Not far away. And I thought it was a perfect time to get you back. You put out a great video that I saw recently around the Green Party that I thought was fantastic. So answer me this. Why can't the Greens be what they actually claim on the tin? Green. Well, because the Greens, as I say in the video, are a watermelon party. They're green on the outside and communist red in the middle. It was always set up as a communist party, but they knew that would never sell in New Zealand. But a lot of America, New Zealanders are very keen on the environment. It's a beautiful country, unspoiled country. So they had to put the green cloak on to get the votes, to get the support. If, if I guarantee 95% of, of New Zealand green voters have no idea that they're voting for a communist party, but they are. Even Chris Trotter, her leftist himself, said the New Zealand Greens are the reddest Green Party in the world. You know, Sue Bradford, ex-Workers Communist League, Keith Locke, ex-Socialist Action League, Russell Norman, ex-Socialist Workers Party, Materia Ture, big ties to the Cubans, they're all Marxists. 
They certainly have been, I think, taking things to a new level in the campaign here. And they're going after the classic Marxist tropes. So the wealth tax is certainly one that was very high on their agenda. Interestingly enough, they've been very conspicuous in their absence in terms of the lead up in the election, in terms of the media, and yet they're polling at the highest levels ever. I mean, have you got any thoughts on that? How, I mean, it's, it seems quite paradoxical, but that's what's happening. Well, I think that that what they're doing, they're doing what the Republicans did here in the last election. They're thinking the Democrats are so bad, we just don't say anything and we'll take their support. While they're thinking, well, Labour is so atrocious that left-wing voters are going to gravitate towards us as long as we don't say anything too controversial, as long as we keep our mouths shut, just fly the green banner, and we'll just let Labour implode and we'll take their vote. Now, I think that's their strategy. And, and it's working so far. They're, they're what, 14, 15, 14% yeah. now? Labour's yeah. 26%, 27%. That's a, a substantial victory for the Greens, a potential a substantial victory, uh, a, a substantial victory for Marxism. That's what it will mm. be. If they said what they are, if they actually vocalised their platforms and the damage it will do to New Zealand society and the economy, they'd be on 1% or 2%. Mm. But silence is golden in this, in this, uh, this instance. One of the things I've noticed is whilst uh, the Labour Party and Te Pāta Māori have been using race as a wedge and a lever, the Greens are going back to a good old tried and true, and that is the politics of envy. And wealth is where they're actually placing that wedge. They're also driving into identitarianism, but at the end of the day, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that does appear to be what they're doing. So it will be really intriguing to see what happens. It's looking like that as well as Chloe Slawbrook holding his seat, they are making a run for the likes of Wellington. And I know that they're also having a good run at Mount Albert as well. So it will be interesting to see. I mean, Labour's failure is going to be the green success by the look of things. The Labour brand is so tarnished. But the left-wing voters, um, you know, and success begets success. So if the Greens start getting 12, 14, 15, 16%, you know, if, if it's timed right, they could end up on 16, 17, 18, maybe even 20%. Mm. You know, they could. Uh, they're not going to become the tip Labour out of first place on the left, but they could run it pretty close, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris Hipkins, do you think he'll come out of this unscathed or is he already starting to look across across the ditch for other opportunities? Do you think he's buffing up the resume? No, he, he's done. You know, when he loses this election, you know, he, he's got nowhere to go. You know, Labour will have to look for a new leader, a fresh face, as they have done about six times in the last eight years. Yeah, he'll be off at uh, go to Oxford University or Harvard or or something overseas you know, make hay over there, but his his career's finished here. And it's a good thing because, you know, I, I just released the video on the Green Party, but also put one out on Chris Hipkins and his Maoist past. You know, the guy is a Maoist, a pro-Chinese communist who has done everything he can to align a, this country with China to get this country in the grips of China because... You know, he came out of Maoist politics at Victoria University. He's always worked with the Maoists. 
And people don't if people don't understand what Maoism means in in the sixties in, in New Zealand in the Vietnam War in the uh, era. A lot of New Zealand students looked to Mao Tse Tung for the answers. You know that was their he was their god, god their idol, and they all started to this this persisted and is still happening today in Victoria University and Auckland University. These Maoist students come out of out of student politics. Then they go into the Alliance Party, the Green Party, the Labour Party. They become cabinet ministers and they promote the same divisive racial policies that the Maoists did, the same class policies, the same, you know, all, all the stuff that co-governance policies, etc. All these are Maoist policies. These come out of the Maoist movement. And Chris Hipkins is a poster boy for that. Jacinda Ardern was involved as well in that, and Helen Clark was one of the very first at it. So you've had three generations, three Maoist prime ministers in New Zealand, all who have built huge ties to China, alienated our Western allies, and fostered racial politics like you wouldn't believe. Mm. That's their agenda. That's their goal. That's their way to revolution. And I think Grant Robinson's... uh up to this to his eyeballs as well. I think him and Hipkins are contemporaries on that score. Well, he was a student radical at Otago. He was involved with the same Maoist groups that Chris Hipkins was involved in. See, in the, in the 90s when Chris Hipkins was there in Wellington, it was the Radical Society run by Alistair Shaw. They had a subgroup called the Aotearoa Youth Network, which Grant Robertson was involved with at Otago. Then Aisha Verrill was involved in it as well. You know, another. So you you can, um, another one to come out of this, uh, this group was Phil Twyford who was Minister of Housing, I believe, Minister of Transport at one stage. A whole bunch of your Labour MPs came out of Maoist student politics. They love China. They are loyal to China, which is why New Zealand is getting more and more and more sucked in to the Chinese nexus. And it's actually a really dangerous thing because being someone who does a bit of business with China in the day job, the other life, we're certainly seeing some cracks appear financially up there and some pressures. The housing market there is looking like it's going to collapse. Yeah. What? How dangerous is a significant financial collapse in China on New Zealand with the current state of financial entwinement? Well, it's, there's two factors here. The, the, the Chinese economy is on the verge of collapse. And maybe they will stave it off, maybe. But it's not looking good. Property companies, big property companies are on the verge of collapse. They've overbuilt like crazy. There's two factors here. Bringing down the Chinese economy will have a massive impact on most Western economies, particularly New Zealand, because it's such a huge market for us. But also, will it push China into war in the Pacific? When a dictator is on the verge of losing power, what do they do? They either collapse or they go to war. And China's already poised to go to war in the Pacific. And it won't just be Taiwan, believe me. Mm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go well beyond Taiwan. So will this collapse delay the war or will it hasten the war? Will they decide, no, we better rebuild and, you know, or, or will they decide we haven't got any time left? 
our own people are going to rebel. We're, we're, we've got to go to war now to rally the people to, to strike out into the Pacific. So it's it's from a an economic point of view, it's very scary, but also from a military point of view, it's mm. it's horrendously scary as well. Well, they've sort of built bases in that uh, that South Asian basin, haven't they? And they've made strategic alliances with the likes of the Solomon Islands because those countries, whilst for many of us we think third world or potentially impoverished, they are actually very very mineral rich, and surely that's what the Chinese would be looking at. I would have thought. Well, they want that, but they also want a strategic base. If they can get a base in the Solomon Islands, which I think they've signed agreements to build one, that will give them the power to project naval power right into the South Pacific. You know, Fiji, the Cook Islands, New Zealand, Australia will all be within striking distance. Now, I had a great interview with Rick Fisher. He's an American uh, military expert on China the other day, and he said, One of the main reasons the Chinese want influence in New Zealand is that it's a staging base to Antarctica. This is really weird. You know, the Chinese plan to attack America from across the South Pole with their missiles because the Americans never figured that they would ever be attacked from the South, only from Russia and China in the North. So all of their weapon systems are facing North. And so China wants a military base in the South Pacific and influence in New Zealand and Antarctica so they can send their missile, have guided missile stations in those areas so they can attack America from the South. And this sounds all, you know, like science fiction stuff, but, you know, Rick Fisher is one of the top military experts in the United States and China is his specialty. He's very highly regarded and that's what he says. That's why China wants the base in the Marsh in the Solomon Islands, why it wants huge influence in New Zealand, and why it's already got bases in Antarctica. They really need New Zealand as a as a bridge between the Pacific and Antarctica. It mm. makes it, you know, for refueling, for uh supplies and 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 putting a, a military stuff here to 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 help their other systems. So we shouldn't think like Helen Clark told us that New Zealanders are living in a, a benign strategic environment. It is not at all. And it's certainly not in a benign economic environment. We're in a bit of a bind because I would like to see the Chinese economy collapse because it might make them less of a threat. But I understand the economic implications of that as well. Do you think part of that is because in this country we are very, our thinking is very short term? We find it very difficult to think beyond chunks of three years, whereas in regimes such as China or Russia or even the communist ethos, they actually think well beyond that. You know, it's generational thinking as opposed to months or years. Well, yeah, look, there's a famous story about, I think it was Mao Zedong, and people say it's not true, but it illustrates the point. So Somebody asked Mao what he thought of the French Revolution. Now, this is 1780, whatever. And he said, it's too early to tell. Uh, look, New Zealanders, we think, in three-year gaps, but also there's a, a character thing. New Zealand lives in one of the most benign, friendly, open societies in the world, and that breeds a sense of complacency, 
and a, a sense, a little bit of naivety too. We don't really, we think we don't want to invade other people. We don't want to conquer territory. We just want to live by ourselves and have a good life. So they think everybody else thinks like that too. Well, China doesn't think like that. They mm -hmm. see themselves as the master race, like Hitler did. They have this communist eth ethos. And communism must expand to survive. It's like a cancer. It doesn't really produce much on its own. It can only parasitize. It can only consume what others have produced. And so it, it must always expand. And, and for China, the Pacific is the place to go. They covet New Zealand. They they would covet Australia. And ultimately, what well, they want to replace the population of North America with their own people. So we're living in, in very, very epochal times, you know. And will Western civilization survive? Will it not? Well, that depends on how we get out of our short-term thinking mm -hmm. and start getting out of our naivety and start actually preparing to, to defend ourselves. Like uh, Rick Fisher said, and, and there's a great, I did a great podcast with him, and he said, look, we could buy, and he named the Condor rockets, we could buy half a dozen of these rockets, put them in, put them there, and we could defend ourselves from any invading Navy for 2,000 miles out for uh, for nothing, for, for virtually, you know, the cost of a, of a short motorway somewhere. And we could do this. Which political party do you know in this coming election is even talking about China as an issue? You name no. one. Yeah. It's yeah. the big elephant in the room. Doesn't matter what else we do in New Zealand. We are economically entwined with, with China. They're a huge military threat. And they are working. They have infiltrated particularly the Labour Party, but also the National Party to some degree. They have many of their agents and key positions in New Zealand right now, some New Zealand-born, some immigrants, and, and they basically manipulate our politics. And we we got to wake up to this. Anne-Marie Brady, who's been trying to warn about this for years, is 100% right. That woman deserves a medal for trying to point this out. You know, we are facing a massive threat from China on, a, on multiple fronts. It doesn't matter what, matter what else we fix. If we can't protect ourselves from China... It's all for nothing. Because militarily, that is one of the things that never gets talked about in this country is the health and well-being of our military. And oh, several months ago, I read a story that really didn't gain traction, but it was talking about the readiness of our current fighting force across all three divisions of our military. And it said that only around one third were fit or healthy enough to go into any form of active combat if New Zealand was to go to war. Which yeah. is a terrifying thought. Well, exactly. And I also heard that during the pandemic, because soldiers were used to enforce pandemic measures, we lost had a 25% turnover of staff in a couple of years. You know, that's experienced staff. You don't rebuild that in five minutes. So the fitness levels are down, the morale isn't great, they're not well equipped. You know, we don't have an air force any longer. We've lost some of the very best people, but don't worry, China's our friend. China mm. would never do anything to hurt New Zealand. We have been lulled for a long time by successive Labour governments who are in the bed with the left and successive national governments 
who don't want to frighten the people because it might put might put people off voting for them into this complete complacency. But look, I know I've talked to New Zealanders on the ground. They are worried about China, very worried. But none of the political parties will talk about it. No, no, no. Not even been- New Zealand First. Not even conservative new conservatives. Certainly not National. Certainly not ACT. Certainly not Labor, who is completely co-opted by them. And the Greens, who are basically working for Cuba, which is an ally of China. Mm. And the difficulty too, I think, is there's so many issues here on the ground, and the especially around inflation and cost of living. And mm. then one of the things I think they miss is that connection between those elements and our economic umbilical cord back with China. So, you know, they are all intertwined in one form or another, aren't they? Here's another thing I think that many people don't consider. The Chinese have a pol- a Chinese Communist Party has a policy called the mass line. It means the Chinese Communist Party comes up with a an idea or concept and everybody must conform conform. At one point in the Cultural Revolution, everybody in the country had to go and kill 10 flies every day. Everybody had to do it. You get punished if you only got nine. Okay. What we saw during COVID was Chinese mass line politics enforced on New Zealand. It was never going to be about hydrochloroquine or vitamin D therapy or herd immunity. It was only going to follow the Chinese model, masks, lockdowns and vaccinations, 100% enforcement of the Chinese model which comes through the World Health Organization, which is run by Tedros, a, a pro-Chinese Maoist from Ethiopia, and the head of his social compliance unit, Susan Mickey, a member of the British Communist Party and a complete China lover. And who did we have as health minister then and prime minister? We had Chris <laughs> Hipkins as health Chris minister, Hipkins. Jacinda Ardern as, as prime minister, but the head of messaging in the prime minister's department was Sarah Helm, of the formerly with the Radical Society of Auckland University, the Maoist group at Auckland University. Jacinda Ardern's campaign manager, Brendan Lane, was also from the Radical Society at Auckland University. So we had Chinese mass line politics in New Zealand for two years, which wrecked the economy caused massive social dislocation, massive PTSD and and thousands of people. And we don't see that this came from China. The Chinese gave us the disease, then they managed the response through their subservient politicians and the unions, which are in New Zealand, are mainly controlled by communists loyal to China. People have no idea that the lockdowns, the the masking, the vaccination was Chinese policy enforced Mm. in New Zealand. We had two years of Chinese communism in New Zealand, and most New Zealanders have no understanding of of that concept. So let's cast our eye across the traditional antidote to this, which has always been a strong North America and particularly a strong United States. Currently at the moment, we're into primary season. And let's face it, I think you would have to be deaf, dumb and blind to not realise that Joe Biden isn't running the show. He's, you know, yeah, he's bumbled yeah. he's bumbled out as sparingly as possible. So heading into primary season, you 
have on the Democratic side Joe Biden, and then they are almost taking, it's interesting, the Democrats are almost taking the same approach that Labour and National are taking with Winston in this country. If we ignore the him long enough, judge, and I'm talking about Robert Kennedy Jr., if you ignore that candidate long enough, hopefully it will go away. What is happening on that side of the fence? Because surely I'm stunned. Last time we spoke about it, you suggested potentially a helicoptering in of someone like Gavin Newsom, but it still hasn't happened yet. We're getting closer to those primary dates. There's been no debates whatsoever on the Democratic side. Biden is bumbling around, and that's even before we get into the potential impeachment now that, that they're now looking at. What is going on, firstly, on the Democratic side of the fence for the current status quo and before we cast our eye across over to what's happening with the GRP? Well, 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 Newsom still has hopes of getting in, but it's getting very late in the day. See, they've got this massive problem. They've got Biden, who is who's run basically by Xi Jinping and Barack Obama, and he's causing all sorts of havoc, but he clearly cannot be their candidate. But they can't get rid of him now because then they get Kamala Harris, who's also a Maoist and is absolutely completely unpopular in every sector of American society. So that they're, they're in a real problem. Then they got Kennedy on the flank, and they there's no way in hell they're gonna let him get anywhere because he's uncontrollable. So they've got a massive problem, and the and and some people think they might try and parachute in uh, Michelle Obama at the convention or something like that, and and I would have poo pooed that idea some time ago, but I think they're in such a bind that that might be the only desperate measure that gives them a shot, mm. because Newsom is unpopular. That's why Newsom is out there now. He's trying to debate Ron DeSantis because he's trying to lift his public profile. The Democrats are in huge trouble. Michelle Obama might be able to save them, but I can't see Newsom saving them at this point. Mm. You know, and we're we're assuming these are fair elections, okay? Well, mm. that's that's not an, assum- an assumption we can really make. But there's also things happening like a Biden has just uh, funded multi billion dollars in a an environmental core. This this is the sort of army that the civilian army that Obama was trying to do several years ago and this has been put together by the sunrise movement which is a front for democratic socialists of america and this is going to get billions of dollars to go out there and campaign and harass conservatives and that kind of thing that's what's happening on that side and it's and it's very uncertain how they're going to get out of this they have really made a lot of trouble for themselves they were so desperate not to have bernie sanders they gave themselves Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, about the two worst candidates they could possibly have. Mm. And now somehow they have to extricate themselves from that. And there's no thought of looking at someone like Pete Buttigieg? Yeah, well, he's another one that comes up. But look, he is he's not. I think Buttigieg would, Buttigieg would be worse than Newsom. I would, if I were them, I'd rather have Newsom than him. The one they would really want would be Michelle Obama. But I don't think she wants to do it, but it may come down to her being strong-armed to do it. Well, her husband's running the country now anyway, mm. so it might make sense. But but I think they're just hoping they can put Trump in jail. They're hoping they can pull a whole bunch of tricks off, maybe start a war somewhere. 
economic collapse could be around the corner. I'm sure there's lots of tricks up their sleeve yet, but they're actual an actual flat. They may not even be banking on having an election. Mm. You know, maybe yeah, that's their, their fallback plan as well. So, but if they are going to have an election, they've got a big problem mm. as it is now. So you mentioned Trump. Are these indictments? I mean, he's man. He's been Teflon so far. So how serious this time are they actually making something stick? Look, I, I think they will try and put him in jail. Yeah, I think they will. They are so hell bent on having him not run. And see, see, they don't see this as a big problem, you know. They put him in jail. That'll trigger a whole lot of American Trump supporters, some of who may do some crazy stuff, just lose it, lose it and go and shoot somebody or whatever, who knows, and that will give them an excuse to just come down like a ton of bricks on any, anybody they don't like. I think they will try and jail Trump, absolutely, because that will likely inflame enough people to give them an excuse to crack down. Mm. It's interesting how they're still persevering with this because the harder they come down on Trump, his support goes up. Have they not made yeah, this? Yeah, but, like- but, you know, look, if they can get convictions, and, and the other thing they're trying to do is because he was uh, and involved in an insurrection, technically there's several efforts in several states to take him off the ballot because you cannot stand if you've been ever been part of an insurrection against the US government. This is an old civil war statute. So all they have to do is take them off the ballot in two or three states, two or three Democrat states, and that makes it, you know, that mm. that amps up the thing so even then, more. So then that actually shows you why they work so hard to take a civil protest to yeah. that level of insurrection to be able to dust off an arcane law to be able to take that's off right. the board. That, that's right. It was, it was very much like what happened with the protest march in, on Parliament. You know, a peaceful march in the parliamentary grounds, provocateurs turn up and start throwing rocks at the cops, and then the cops come in and start hosing people out of trees, and the whole movement gets tarnished. Well, that's January the 6th. That's what happened. There's so many FBI informants amongst all of that that they couldn't, they ended up losing track of them. Mm. You know, that was a deliberate provocation to a Reichstag moment where they could claim there was violence and therefore use that to, to go after enemies, intimidate people, and potentially take people off ballots. Yeah, crazy. So, in terms of the rebel that's left on that GOP side, and it's a crowded field. Is it, do you think, an audition for a running mate or is it is it an audition for an understudy just in case? What are, what are your sort of views on what's going on with the rest of those contenders? Yeah, I look, I think the only one with any real chance is DeSantis and he wants to run in his own right and he's hanging in there. He can't say this publicly, but he thinks that Trump, Trump may be taken away. Right now, DeSantis is one on 15%, Trump's on 50%. But if Trump is taken out of the picture, he's prosecuted or he's jailed or he just runs out of money to defend himself, yeah, he, he's his own man. He's He wants to be the presidential candidate. None of the others have any chance. Mm. It's only either going to be Trump or DeSantis. You know, the Democrats don't like either of them, but 
right now the one they just hate beyond all all reason is Trump. So that's that's what they're going to do. That but they might uh, they might rue that <laughs> they might rue that one day down the down the track. There's so many factors here that it's almost impossible to predict what's going to happen from one day to the next at the moment. Yeah. It, yeah. it really is beyond anything we've ever seen before. Well, and the only ones that seem to be benefiting out of this, the lawyers, it would be a great time to be a, a litigator oh, in this time, wouldn't it? Well, that's right. They can be there. They'll, they'll make themselves the richest men in the gulag, you know, yeah. and uh, so good for them. But so I go to a lot of meetings here. I speak at a lot of audiences, and, and the base is some of them are discouraged, some of them are energized, but everybody is confused. Nobody has a clear way forward here. That that is by design, I think. They mm. just want to spread as much confusion as they can, as much disinformation, as much propaganda. You know, I, I joke that there's three main elements elements in the atmosphere right now, and that's uh nitrogen, oxygen, and propaganda. Too much propaganda denies you of oxygen and turns your brain to mush. That's what they're trying to do, I think. Mm. Speaking of propaganda, uh, Justin and his uh, house speaker, Rota, got themselves into a bit of a sticky wicket the oh, other day, didn't they? That was was unbelievable. How You wonder if that was orchestrated, because how could they not have known that an Ukrainian who fought against the Russians, who else would have been fighting for but the Nazis? Mm. You know, who, 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 if you look at just history at that time, did they not? You know, he was publicly known that he was ex-SS. He must have been uh, just in the very last year of the war or something because he would have been born about 1933, so he would have only been about 18. I think he's, and- I think he's in 98 or something, isn't he? I thought he was only 90, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe not, yeah. Yeah. He's he's a ripe old age. Yeah, he's very much, I thought he was the same age as my old dad. So, But he would have been a fairly young man in the last days of the war. But, you know, that speaker has resigned uh, from Parliament. His career's finished. He put a lot of ego on a lot of faces. Yeah, that, that was... So what we're talking, just in case listeners haven't caught up with this, there was in the House in Canada, there was a standing ovation for this former Ukrainian soldier. And as it turned out, he was a Nazi. So they're sort of backtracking with all this egg egg on face. And to me, it just showed you really the true infantile nature of Justin Trudeau. Like he's, I know somebody who, knows him and their family, and his nickname uh, apparently was Pretty McDumdum. I was talking to him about this last night, and I said to him, I said, oh, I said, your old mate's got himself into a bit of poo, and he just shook his head and went, yeah, not Yeah, well, when you say knows his family, you mean the Cuban side or the Canadian side? No, the Canadian side. Because he's ideological, Justin. I mean, he he's like Jacinda. He lives in the world of bumper stickers. We like to throw out, you know, all our little bumper sticker lines. And I guess that from their perspective, they looked at this. Vladimir had been over for a visit. They wanted to look good to to Vlad. And they did this huge, big virtue signal. And it's come back to bite them in the bum. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and Justin is, you know, he's the left wing ideologue. 
You know, his father, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, you know, was was deeply in bed with the Communist Party in Montreal. He he went to China in the early 60s. You know, people don't realise just how far left these connections go. He was a hardcore Marxist. And but, you know, a very popular president of Canada for a long time, had had a lot of influence in the direction of that country. And now Justin Trudeau is up there and they've just had a big scandal in Canada where the Chinese had influenced about 10, 10 to 12 elections in his favour. But, you know, there's nothing to see here. It's all it's all mm. sort of, you know, quietly fading away. But this is the point I've been making is that the Chinese are influencing elections all over the Western world, particularly in New Zealand, particularly in Canada. They bring huge numbers of their people into the country. They start buying politicians. They start funneling money to certain politicians. They set up bogus real estate companies that that channel money. So, uh, you know, back back 10, uh, in 2009, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service issued a report saying that the Chinese government had complete control of the provincial legislatures of both British Columbia and Alberta, Canada's two richest provinces, not influencing complete control of. This was 13 years ago, 14 years ago. So we we need to understand in the West just how deep the Chinese penetration is of countries like Canada, New Zealand, Britain, the United States. You know, if you were Xi Jinping and you wanted to take down the West, you could get into a multi-billion dollar trade war or a multi, multi-trillion dollar shooting war before you were ready, or you could just budget a few billion dollars every year to buy up New Zealand politicians, Australian politicians, Canadian politicians, American politicians to do your dirty work for you. What do you think would be a better investment and a safer investment? Mm. The only fly I can see potentially in China's ointment is their plummeting birth rate. Now, well, they, aren't, yeah. they aren't at replacement. They dropped the one-child policy, but they've gone and culturally set a paradigm that young Chinese are not really prepared to shake themselves out of. Do you think that they will use their power and influence to try and reverse that, or, is, or are they looking at trying to expand elsewhere to offset that? You're right, because, you know, the Chinese are used to the to the affluence that comes from having a small family, and they're not going to go back to having six kids and living in poverty. You know, you can't change that pattern back very easily. So they've got this massive problem looming. So does this mean, you know, as I said, with the economy, you know, their their plan is to attack America. Their plan is to become the dominant world power. But their economy is faltering and their population is declining. Does that mean we put our plans off, we abandon the plans, or does that mean we advance them while we still have enough people? I think we're entering the most critical phase of world history over the next 10 years, maybe the next five years. Either China is going to go to war with allies, probably with Russia, probably with Iran, probably with, uh, you know, Would they maybe go with even North Korea. Yeah, definitely North Korea. Yeah, because I see that they've uh, they've just enshrined their nuclear ambitions as the ultimate national mission. The North Koreans. Yeah, yeah well, that's right. They, 
But but North Korea is a puppet of China. We we people who say, well, let's let's influence China to reign in North Korea. That's like saying let's influence Hitler to reign in Mussolini. They are allies. But we have this diplomatic BS, these diplomatic niceties that North Korea is this independent actor that just does crazy stuff. And if we can get the moderate Chinese to rein them in, that might be good. No, North Korea does what China tells it to do. Mm. It's useful. And so they are fully committed. Um, They've even threatened to attack South Korea very recently. China has just taken a, a little bit of Philippines territory. It basically thinks it now owns the South China Sea, which is the major trade route that supplies Japan. So now Japan is increasing its defence budget massively. Mm-hmm. So what do we got? We used to have uh, a strong American Navy in the Pacific and a weak China, and everybody was relatively happy and it was all fairly stable. Now the, the US Navy is way smaller than the Chinese Navy, and we've got very weak leadership co-opted by China in the United States. So what is China going to do? It's going to chance its arm now while it has an opportunity. It doesn't want to wait till you get a decent patriotic president in America who builds up the military and rebuilds alliances and whatever. So this is why we're in a very critical time. And Mm. this way, all free people need to stand together now. And that's even without looking at the tens of thousands of military-aged young men pouring across your southern border. Well, that's 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 again what you. There's another whole conversation, I think. That's right, but but the the communists see the American Revolution as coming across the southern border. I read all their literatures. They say the key to the American Revolution is a porous southern border. A, it's bringing millions of new Democrat voters across the border, but it's also bringing Hamas, Hezbollah, Russian spaznuts, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Chinese military-age men, many believed to be involved with the Chinese special forces. So this is what I try and tell my American friends. The day that China goes to war, you're going to see bridges blown up all over America. You're going to see mayors assassinated. You're going to see shopping malls attacked. You're going to see um, bridge dams blown up, reservoirs poisoned, because you've got all these people in America waiting for the word. Mm. And they have their their biological weapons. They have their weapons caches all over the Southwest. They just have to go and dig them up and go and destroy something. And so we're trying to fight a war in the Pacific with a leader that we can't trust. And meanwhile, we're running around with like chooks with their heads cut off, trying to deal with all these people um, running around blowing things up. And when Biden gave Afghanistan to China, which he did, They also captured the means of making real American military IDs. So how many of those people coming across the border have an ID saying they're Private Wing Cho of the 1st Marine Armoured Division or whatever, you know? Mm. And they could walk onto any base in the country and create mayhem. So there's all sorts of 
things going on here. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I'm, I'll, we'll probably I'll catch up with you again definitely once the primaries get started because I think that you know, as you said, it's a pretty fluid situation and it's hard to pick what's going on right now. And there's a lot of food for thought there, you know. And as you said, there's so many balls in the air, isn't there? You just don't quite know what's going to land where and when. But Trevor, it's been a joy as always. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, again pleasure, this morning. pleasure, Marie. And don't disappear, of course, everybody. Great content yet here to come on Counterculture with Marie on RCR. If you want to watch the videos I referred to in this interview with Trevor, we have links posted on our blog page. You can access these via our app, just go to blog, or online at realitycheck.radio. Also, feel free to email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio for a copy of the links. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie. And as you know, I talk about culture, but I also like to dabble a little bit in politics. Having spoken to a number of our female leaders of minor parties, we thought now that we're getting to the pointy edge of the wedge, in the election campaign, it was time to actually talk to some candidates who have a really good chance of getting into Parliament come 15 of October. Once the dust is settled, we put out invitations to all those parties that we thought could have that potential. The first party to come back and put their hands up and say, yes, please, we would love to have a chat and a catch-up were these three incredible candidates from New Zealand First. So joining me this morning is Casey Costello, number three on the New Zealand First list. Good morning, Casey. Good morning. And I've got Erica Harvey, number 10 on the list. Good morning. Good morning. And Kirsten Murphy at number 11. So welcome. Thank you for joining me here today. Thank you. It's so good to have you along. One of the things I wanted to find out a little bit more from each of you is everyone talks about, and all a lot of voters see, is Winston, 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 Winston. And he has put in some hours, but you all are as well. And a party isn't just one man. So for our listeners, starting uh, with you, Casey, tell our listeners just a little bit more about you and what brought you to campaigning and standing for New Zealand First. Um, so, yeah, I've, I come from a, um, a police background, but um, very heavily involved in the police association. So when I left the police, I was vice president of the police association. So I kind of had this advocacy sort of role built into me, I suppose. For the last seven years, I've been, um, I was founding trustee for Hobson's Pledge and was spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge with Don Brash advocating for equality before the law. So um, I had seven years ago, was very concerned about where we were heading in terms of division by race, and I don't think it's improved. It's, in fact, gone a lot worse. Yeah, when I started to recognise that if we were really going to shift the dial, that had to be from Wellington um, as, as hard as I was lobbying. And for me, New Zealand First was the party that had consistently, and it's 30 years of history, 
um, stood for the fact that we are New Zealanders and um, New Zealand First stood for New Zealand and New Zealanders First. So um, it was sort of a natural progression. Um, plus, I've sort of got a long background association to um, Winston and his family. So um, he comes from Pananaki and my, my family's Nasi Wai from just across the harbour. So, yeah, so we sort of went back quite a way and it was a natural fit for me. Mm, I know it's something that Shane Jones often says that it's time to put the K back into iwi. Uh, So, yeah, so I know that's um, interesting. What about you, Erica? Because it it does sound a little like me that you're not born of this land. (laughs) No, I'm American-born New Zealander. So I've spent the last 15 years in Tauranga. Um, My husband is is from here and we've had both of our children here. for me, I mean, I've never aspired to be in politics. Um, and I often, you know, say that you only become interested, I think, people like me uh, in politics when decisions made directly impact your life and or someone that you care about. And so that's what got me into politics. And I think that's why this election is so different for many people, because I think COVID in 2020 affected everyone in so many different ways that people who traditionally might not have been interested in politics are now getting very interested and actually thinking, you know, is there more than just red and blue? Um, Like they say, red or blue, nothing new, you know? So maybe it is time to look at black and look at a center party. Um, I found myself uh, uh, getting involved with New Zealand First um, around 2016, 2017. I was uh, fighting a local issue against the local council in support of 25 small businesses on a development. Um, And I had, you know, I guess naively, I had thought that when you enter a process with any sort of government agency, these meetings are all leading to something. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we had meeting after meeting and nothing seemed to change except for the development that we were talking about continued to move forward. And I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, I think I'm just having meetings for meetings. Um, I didn't know how to properly complain. I thought that I had complained considering I had raised these issues many times. And um, being with the, you know, the national party, like that's how I always voted. It's how, you know, I guess I always thought if you had a business or you're interested in business, you vote for national. And so that's why I'd always traditionally been the national voter. But when I approached them on this issue, which was pushing out about 200, over $200 million from our local economy, it was a significant problem. I approached them and they weren't really interested. And I found myself walking through the doors of New Zealand first and I remember meeting the MP at the time and he was so relatable and and nice and he took the time to understand the issues. And then at the same time, he kind of said, this doesn't really work like corporate works. And he would walk me through the steps of actually how you start to lobby government. And so that took a long time to get through. And then I wound up having to stand in that local body election because no one was listening at that time. I couldn't get a lawyer. Um, No one would represent us. We just kept hitting roadblock after roadblock. We were spending money we didn't have as a business. People were being threatened if they spoke out against it. And so I wound up being like the sole person for this this issue, ran in that 2019 election. And that actually changed everything. Um, It gave me a platform. Then people started to listen. I feel like the meetings I had They started to go, oh, no, she could work with us almost. And then it started to make progress. And a lot of the rumors that I had heard about me that were untrue, those started to go away. And, um, you know, then we were able to get a lawyer to represent us. And so things started to change. And I automatically thought to myself, man, you really have to you have to be prepared to stand up 
if you're going to complain or you're going to try and, you know, do something against the system, I think you have to, you know, give yourself a voice, give people a voice and you have to actually learn. It shouldn't be this way, but politics and government is a totally different I don't want to call it a beast, but it's totally different. You have to navigate it differently. You have to be quite strategic in how you approach it. And I think coming just from a corporate background, I was approaching it like that. Um, and so that's how I started to get involved in in politics. Then I have a daughter with special needs who has autism. I was a chairperson of her school. Um, and then I started to speak out around the funding model there because the funding model is inequitable for kids with additional learning needs and looking at how we can you know, better equip schools and um, and teachers and how we can look at that system. So I started to become a voice in, in education. And so, um, yeah, that's really been my journey is finding these areas and, and actually realizing that politics affects every aspect of our life. And I don't know why it took me so long to realize, to realize that because every decision will affect us all. And I just, I'm hopeful that this election means that more people will get involved and actually listen to what everyone has to say and then make their own decisions upon how they want to vote based on that. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, that you say that you go through all those processes because that's one of the things that I get told a lot is that there's that hope that things will get better. But unless you get involved in the process, it's a little bit like wishing and dreaming that you're going to win lotto, but you never bother buying a ticket. Exactly. It's, not, it's just not going to happen. And I do feel your pain because I've got a son with autism and you and I later, we can swap war stories on that, I'm sure. Now Kirsten um, can even input and, on that. And I was just going to say, Kirsten, I know because I think you also fit into this boat with your family as well. So tell us a little yes, bit more did. about your journey because I know that I saw you on the River of Freedom movie. So that has been huge. And you, more than probably any other candidate in New Zealand, Zealand first has been targeted by the media, but you're still here and you're still campaigning and you're still getting the word out there. So let us know a little bit more about your journey. So I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So up until 2020, um, I'm a lawyer. I've got 20 plus years experience in commercial and property law. There have been little journeys where I've seen injustice, where I sort of poked my head up, but nothing major. And as a mum of a special needs child who's now 16, I've literally been advocating and fighting for him and others um, through that journey. So 2020 came along and I was terrified. I washed my cans. I'm afraid, ashamed to admit that. But things started not to make sense. And I started to see the rule of law being broken in New Zealand and the erosion of democracy. And I didn't like the trajectory that we were on. So... I bravely into August 2021 wrote my first open letter and official information act request, which went viral. And I was like, wow. And there were 15,000 on my petition very quickly. And I thought I'd solved all the world's problems. Um, then they cut my petition off. So no one else could actually sign up to it. And I didn't get one response. It was just the stark silence. And that's when I realized something was very, very wrong in our democracy. So I went to court with Sue Gray for the civil aviation case. Once again, we thought we'd win that. Um, Justice Cook listened to all the evidence. He actually said that he'd read all the science and the science, because we got to Omicron at that level. And it was all about transmission. So we were very, very surprised when we got the verdict, um, sorry, the decision, that we'd lost the case. And it took him a long time to come back with that decision, which we found surprising given that this was impacting on people's ability to work and pay their mortgages and put food on the table. So we did that and realised the court system wasn't going to work. 
then everyone went to Wellington. Um, and I remember being down in Wellington, there was suddenly like this murmur that Winston was in the crowd and everyone was very excited. And I saw him in the crowd and I was too afraid to go up to him at the time, but it was just exciting that a politician, he wasn't in parliament at the time, but he had actually come all the way to meet with the people. So typical Winston style, there was no fanfare. He just really wanted to understand what was going on and to listen to the people. So I began to get quite interested in him then. And then I saw the State of Nations speech at the start of the year, which I was very impressed by. Um, at that point in time, I was actually in a different party. But we just kept following him. And then when I left the other party with the six other individuals that resigned, I was at Cambridge the next day and went backstage and asked if I could have a discussion with them. Mm. So that's sort of how I got there. Then Eric, I think, rang me on the Monday and it was just so refreshing to talk to her. I was expecting New Zealand First to be a certain way, but she was so open to discussion and we spoke about amazing subjects. And I was like, yes, this is it's probably going to be my political home. So I went up to Auckland to the training day, met Casey and a lot of the other individuals. And I was just so impressed. It was like democracy in action. We were allowed to have differences of opinion. We were allowed to debate, um, but we all respected each other and we can all move forward together, even if we've got differences of opinions. So that's one of the things that, that I've noted with a number of the parties is that they aren't allowing the freedom of opinion within their own caucus. And yet New Zealand First, you stand alone on that. Everyone, I mean, on the list that I've seen of uh, 16, I think the list is, that, is there lots of difference of opinion and people coming from things from different angles? Absolutely. And you will talk it yeah. all out? Yeah? Yeah. I think that is what makes a, a good party and remembering that we're a centre party. So our our role as a centre party is to balance both sides. So I think it's important that we have people from both sides so that we can come up with balanced common sense policy and have robust discussions because I think that's the one thing that hopefully government have learned from 2020 is that the only way we can truly move forward, you know, as a country and together across every every policy is to hear each other out and have those conversations. So that is actually why I think New Zealand First, I don't know why people don't pay more attention to us because I do think that we if people actually looked at our policies and met the people in the party, I think we resonate with a lot of people out there that usually probably would think that they're not the traditional New Zealand first voter. I, I think that they would come across. Hmm. So now that things are getting closer to the election days, I mean, polling started yesterday, early voting. We're getting close to the finish line and the race card got pulled last week. That had to <laughs> pop up at some stage. So Casey, as someone who has been in this space for quite some time with your work with Hobson's Pledge, I don't know about you, but I thought it was particularly disingenuous from Chris Hipkins to try and corner Christopher Luxon in that debate on race over comments from one of your caucus members against a party whose first three candidates on the list are all Māori. How do you do that? I, I think one of the challenges is this the, the Labour narrative has been to take possession of a victim narrative and and try to own it. I mean, I've said it repeatedly. It, it's the, the party that is literally standing on the backs of the people they claim to represent in order to elevate their relevance. And Winston says it often. They're of the people, but they're not for the people. 
and and that's exactly the point. They are claiming ownership of Māoridom. And if you saw the Kaupapa leaders debate, you know that, that this was seven diverse Māori representatives who not one of them agreed. So if you can have seven Māori leaders sit there talking about um, issues and no agreement, then surely we must accept that just like anyone, Māori have individual thoughts, views, ideas, aspirations, capabilities, and this sense that a party is going to claim ownership of what is good for Māori is just so offensive. It's just so offensive to, to suggest that you know we we don't have the ability to claim our own aspiration that you know we need this. And and one of the things I always go back to, Thomas Sowell says it a lot, and when he says about grievances win votes. And if you can take ownership of the grievance, you'll win votes because blessings don't win votes, grievances do. And and that's what that's what they're trying to do is, is claim possession of the grievance grievance narrative and damn the consequences. You know, we, we don't have to deliver better outcomes. We'll, we'll just claim ownership of a victim narrative. And that's why I, that, that's literally where I stand up and applaud when Winston says they're of the people, they're not for the people. That's the strongest argument, I think. One of the things that I've noticed is I love the photographs that get put up of all the town hall meetings. Mm-hmm. And many of them are standing room only. One recently went up in a portiki. You know, I know that town. It's not too far away from both you, Kirsten and Erica. And one of the things I noticed other than the fact that that hall was packed, was the number of kui and kaumatua that were in that hall. So when you were out doing your campaigning, from a not only just a senior perspective, because New Zealand First has always, I think, been the only party that has been very proactive in the senior space, but you're also being very proactive in a positive way for Māori. What are people telling you out when you're doing your campaigning around those sorts of areas in terms of being the unheard voices or voices that are just, they're trying to be heard but not being listened to by the other parties. That's one of the things that's resonated with me is, you know, like it, it I mean, I'm in Port Waikato. This is, you know, the the, the Franklin market, Pukekohe markets, Pocono markets, this sort of thing. The number of Māori that are coming up and saying, they don't, they don't get to talk to me. This is the stuff that is really... I mean, I, when, when the um, voting papers started coming out, I got phone calls from people saying, you know, this is people on the Māori roll saying, I can't vote for you. I didn't know I can't vote for you because I'm on the Māori roll. This is the stuff that they're starting to... Um, and when they did the census, you know, they did the big push to try and get this push onto the Māori roll. But what they ended up with was um, there was just over 5,300 went on to the Māori roll and 4,700 came off it. You know, they're like, this is the starting to realise that, oh, actually, you know, we've all got individual. But this idea that we're tired of rhetoric and we want outcomes, I think is the, the, the strongest thing that's coming through for me. No, I've had lots of similar responses where people are like, I didn't actually realise I couldn't vote for you. And so my lead volunteer, she's Māori, She's really for what Winston is saying. We talk quite intimately about it because she just wants some common sense. Like we've got all these elite Murray that are dictating and the only negative comments I've had is from the Labour candidate. Um, And she's a really lovely lady, but she has different viewpoints to me. Mm. 
And in terms of seniors too, I mean, Erica, I mean, being in Tauranga, you do have a lot of seniors there and a lot go to retire in, you know, the beautiful sunshine. And what are they saying? I mean, are they getting frustrated or they're wanting to make sure that they have a voice, that they at least know that if, if they place a vote and they feel like they've at least been listened to? Yeah, I, I think that exactly that. I mean, seniors, I think in 2020, well, I'll go back. In 2017 to 2020, we were in a coalition. And I think one of the biggest problems that I see in a coalition government is that when you come to campaign out of the back of that, a lot of the public don't know whose um, who's policies are whose, right? So as an example, our policy was to deliver, you know, um, police, right? And so that was, a lot of people thought that was labor. You know, New Zealand First was when we talk about education, so we talk about learning support coordinators, right? Rolling that out, New Zealand First policy. So New Zealand First is gone. Obviously, the last tranche doesn't get rolled out. But also people thought that, wow, these are such uh, great policies. It must be labors because they're a bigger party. And so I think that when you see the shift, like with the seniors, I think the shift happened because people didn't genuinely realize whose policies were who. And all we saw in that 2020 election was, you know, the Labor Party and Jacinda Ardern and and Chris Hipkins, and they made everyone feel safe. And everyone kind of forgot about which parties stood for what, and they all shifted. And now that shift is coming back because they see from 2020 to 2023, what were the outcomes that got delivered for seniors, right? Not many. And so now it's looking at us again. We're, we've always been the party for seniors. You know, we introduced the gold card. You know, we've got some great policies coming out. And I think that um, I think that shift is coming back. To me, it'll be interesting on election day to see how many people were labor or have actually shifted to New Zealand first. I think that's where we'll be pulling votes from. And then I think, you yeah. know, there's also this group considering that shift, you know, what over 400,000 people swap from national to labor in 2020. I'm also curious in that swap, like how many will actually come to the center to New Zealand first. Um, so this is going to be a very, very interesting election. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up, Erica, because New Zealand First traditionally, I mean, 2020 is an outlier election, I think, in so many different ways. It's the first time we've had an election that was like first past the post and not MMP. Yeah. In the sense that we had a single party, it was we saw voting habits, like strategic voting habits that you would normally not see. If we take 2020 out of the mix and we look at the elections that New Zealand First have been involved with, one of the consistent things has always been is that New Zealand First polls better at the end of the election than what has been predicted. So that has been fairly consistent. So with that bearing in mind, I mean, the we're now little now high fives, sort of six, depending on the polls that you're looking at. Are you guys aware of the percentage points, those party vote percentage points you need to get the likes of you across the line, Erica and Kirsten? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. So what are. are the sort of numbers are we looking at that? So for voters out there that are thinking, oh, I like the cut of the sound of that Erica and Kirsten, what are the kind of numbers that you need to get you across the line into the house? I I'm going to just jump in quick <laughs> because I would actually like to see over 10% because I think we've got just beyond Kirsten even, you know, we've got a solid team. So I'd actually be pushing for that. Um, look, if you get us 10%, you'll get me, you'll get Kirsten, you'll get Casey, you'll get some amazing other candidates as well. So that my goal say 10% at the minimum. Mm-hmm. And we work so well together as well. Like Eric and I have been tag teaming. And we just support each other and we're working well with Casey as well. So it will be a force to be reckoned with if yep. we get in. Absolutely. 
So the media have tried to, of course, <laughs> paint a lot of these new voters coming across to New Zealand first as mm. those dreadful anti-vaxxers and those those freedom people, or as I like to call them in Aotearoa Farm, the chickens out in the back paddock. And Seymour uh, <laughs> has dealt with it by getting rid of all of his chicken sympathisers because he obviously hasn't had time for them. But then last I thought week, he stood for freedom of speech. Well, yeah, but I think that's a bit like the cookie monster. It can be a sometimes thing, Kirsten. <laughs> However... In regards to that freedom vote, we're getting feedback in here to us. A lot of people are really passionate about the freedom parties. You came, Kirsten, from a freedom party into New Zealand first. We're now starting to get feedback. So this is only anecdotal, but feedback that they're now starting to see a real opportunity to get the likes of you across the line, Erica across the line, League across the line, and they're starting to coalesce. Are you starting to hear that now as well? So they're not wanting necessarily to be disloyal, but they're also being pragmatic. Do you think pragmatism is going to start to take hold over the next couple of weeks? It's definitely happening. I'm hearing it more and more every day. Um, lots of people are speaking out at the moment. Um, there's been some misinformation that's been spread by one party in particular and some people like Dr Shelton, Dr Ratner and others are actually correcting that information at the moment. I also understand Lee from Groundswell will be coming out why she's voting for New Zealand first. So yeah, more and more every day people are actually realising if they want a voice in Parliament, New Zealand first is pretty much the only choice. Like I wish the other parties well, I understand their aspirations and come back in 2026 but if you're not polling near that 5% threshold now, I sincerely believe that it won't, will not happen in a week and a half. Do you know what else I think too about, about the minor parties at the moment is that I would actually really like to see in 2026 a a lot of minor parties who have actually these next three years, just touching on what Kirsten said, is I'd like to see these next three years, those parties, you know, continue to actually work on the mission and what they're trying to do, keep up with, you know, what's going on in politics. And then, you know, perhaps there is an opportunity then in 2026 to run and actually make a strong run where they, you know, because I just, I would, I would love to see more ideas come through those smaller parties. And so, yeah, that's just one thing I just wanted to add. But then that goes back to, doesn't it? And I think you're right the ones that have got the stickability to stick it out. Because, I mean, how many years has New Zealand First been around now? 30. 30. 30. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think the strongest point that you've got there is that a lot of these parties have been galvanised by the fact that they weren't being listened to. And fair enough, they... But for the last three years, New Zealand First wasn't there to listen to them. And and so there was this yeah. sense that you want to be heard. And it is the House of Representatives. And this is why I, I get concerned about par parties that are so ready to dismiss candidates. They might have a personal view or opinion that is you know contrary to what the party is trying to say. It is the House of Representatives. It needs to be representative of New Zealanders. If you're the party, which I, which is why New Zealand First resonated with me, was that they're the party that will advocate not what's the easy message, not what's the, the simple message, but they will advocate and have the really tough conversations and call people out for, for not, not saying the truth. We're allowed to disagree with each other. That's the whole idea of, of, of politics is that you're allowed to 
disagree and come to the common ground so that we can actually get some better outcomes. I think that's that's why these issues and that's why I think that the push to New Zealand first is being so evident is because there is a diversity of representation all behind some really strong policy positions to affect change, but diversity of opinion to start with, which is what I think diversity is supposed to mean. So let's look at some of that. So 1800 police was actually, as you said, uh, Erica, was a New Zealand first policy that got brought in in 2017. Here we are now, uh, 2020. Casey, you must be tearing your hair out as an ex-police member, and you probably still have people within the force looking at what has happened over the last three years. What are you hearing in terms of the concern, both from the constabulary currently, the concerns that they have in terms of either their ability to police and help with crime and those outcomes moving forward. And what has New Zealand first got in terms of policy to bring to the table to help turn that, essentially, this these crime stats around? Well, one of the things that's really struggling with the police is that, you know, when I was in the job, which is you know, kind of nearly 20 years ago, was that, you know, there, there was constabulary independence. The, the police got on to fight crime. That was, you know, that was our job. You you make, you uphold the law and maintain public order. That that was your job. And how you did that was up to the police and, and you, you made that happen. Over the last three years, the, the direction and the influence of policing has been so constrained by political agenda um, that we stop worrying about bad guys and we definitely stop worrying about victims. Mm. Every narrative that you heard was about the circumstances of the offender, which I think is abhorrent. You know, yes, once you're in the system, then there's opportunities for rehabilitation. But the first thing, we have legislation that requires us to protect victims' rights and it just seemed to have gone out the window. And, and the other thing is that from New Zealand First Policy point of view is that we're talking about, you know, serious organised crime. You know, the, the, the gang con- concept that we used to, you know, in our younger years talk about, you know, the, the gang problems. That gang, that, that we're talking about a totally different mechanism. We're talking about serious organised crime. And when, you know, New Zealand First comes out of a policy around reclassifying gangs as terrorist organisations and, you know, those who haven't been at the front line and don't realise it, scoff at it, like, you know, what's going to be a gang member? That They're just naive. And that's what we have to stop first. We have to break the cycle. We have to intervene and break the cycle. And giving police sufficient powers to deal with gangs and isolating them from the rest of the community, we have an opportunity to break the cycle. And that's, that's one of the you know, I think the strongest things that we need to do is actually take it seriously and and not totter with the fringes, actually get stuck into the, the core heart of this issue. And then once we've broken the cycle, then we can start moving forward, you know, getting all of the nice-to-have stuff going through, but we have to break that cycle and targeting the gangs is the first part. Mm. So is this sort of really getting a back-to-basics approach? I think so, yeah. 
Because that was one of the things, again, with that Aporiki meeting, because, of course, you know, they had a lot of gang issues there several months ago. And, you know, that's at the forefront of their community. And you've got not only the organised crime element, but the drugs and all the other social issues that go along with it. Then that, of course, leads into social issues in families and education. So I'm assuming, Erica, education is a sweet spot with you. So I worry a lot. And I talk a lot with education with my co-host Media Matters, Marty Gibson, which I think both Erica and Kirsten, you both know. And, yes. and he's really hot on education, having kids go through the primary system at the moment. And, and it, those statistics, are, I mean, they're appalling. As a mother of a special needs child, <laughs> the system is not built for anybody that does not fit the middle of a bell curve. Yeah. So what are the policies that New Zealand First, and especially you guys too as, as mums, are looking at in, in terms of getting those outcomes? So not the nice to have, not the warm fuzzies, not the big open rooms, but the actual meaningful outcomes so our children aren't left behind. I think a lot of that starts in the very beginning too of like a child's life. So the moment that you have a child, some of the stuff New Zealand First is focused on is, you know, looking at that first 1000 days of a child's life and how supporting a child and educating parents um, on those first 1000 days and how important they are actually has shown that research has shown that we will actually be able to like set them up for life, right? So there's a lot of education that I think goes into the beginning. So like Casey touched on, what do we do right now and how do we focus on the right now? And then I think moving forward, we've got to focus on how do we make sure that these outcomes don't happen again for these new children that are coming through these families. We're in a really rough time right now. So education is a big focus and it has to be a system that works for everyone. I mean, if we look at education, and you know, just as a whole. Um, it was designed back in the Industrial Revolution, you know, and if we look at modern education, it seems wild to me that we we have children now who have social media, they've got devices, they've got phones, they've got YouTube, they're constantly stimul like stimulated. And then we expect them to sit in a classroom for, you know, six hours a day and behave while they're looking at, you know, just a traditional type of. So I think that, you know, in the long term, We've got to look at how we can start engaging uh, students better, um, getting them, you know, excited to come to school because they're learning things in different ways. I mean, I know for me, you know, growing up, even though it was some time ago, if you had a really good teacher, I mean, that would make me show up to school. And so I also think there's, you know, there's an element of uh, parents like at home to get kids going to school. There's another element of, you know, are the teachers that we have teaching these kids, um, you know, are they actually exciting them? What kind of, you know, curriculum are they putting together? Is it for all learners, you know? So I'm facing an issue now where my daughter is in a unit where she'd always been mainstreamed. And when she was in the mainstream and properly supported in that mainstream at her primary school, the growth in her has been amazing. The benefits for all other children has been amazing because they've gotten to see that all kids aren't the same. And then now that we've had to change schools, I'm actually having to almost fight the school to get her out of this unit just to mainstream her with other kids. And I've even had the department head come into a meeting with me to say that my daughter should be going and they will help support it. And it's just like a battle. And I just think to myself, this shouldn't be a battle. You know what I mean? And as parents, we know our kids. I think there's an element of, there's so many things in education that's going wrong. And one thing, like if you've got a kid with additional learning needs, like I do, like you do, like Kirsten, the way that you teach these kids is so important because if I were to sit my daughter into one of these courses around sexual ideology, right? Around gender. Well, 
I don't actually know what she's going to take from it because before you could be a tomboy because you liked rugby. Now you might be a boy. I mean, and those things are quite confusing for children. You know, like my daughter would admit to a crime if she thought that's what you wanted her to do. You know, so when we're getting into these tough conversations, I mean, we also have to protect you know, all kids, because some kids may, the last thing I want is my daughter to go and start Googling, even though she's of age to learn about, you know, sex. I don't want her to be Googling it right now because what she's going to find on the internet is also as bad. And so these conversations I feel, you know, need to be coming from the home. I think parents need to start taking charge of what their kids are learning and not just leave it up to schools. And that goes with discipline, like being a chair of a school, we saw, you know, kids who were doing great, School holiday would happen. They'd come back to school and they were rough. They were, you know, their um, behaviors were escalated. And that's because what we were doing in the school wasn't being practiced at home. So I think we have to take ownership of that too. There has to be a better partnership between schools and families um, as we go through this. I've noticed that schools are inserting themselves more and more between the child-parent relationship, which I always found quite, quite disturbing. Is it safe to assume then that when we look at some of the gender stuff, things like uh, the gender closets gone. Mm. Yeah. No more pronoun policing. No, I mean, yeah. it's not a New Zealand first policy anyway. I mean, look, I, I think how the ARBA stance on any of this is as is, is, is simple as this. We don't mind what you do in your bedroom. We don't mind what you do in your spare time or however, you know, who you're attracted to, what you want to be. But we don't think that the government should have any say in that. And we just think people should be accepted for who they are. And we just need to move on. It's not even a discussion, really. You know? Yeah. Uh, the phrase that Winston says often, which is just, it simplifies that it's education, not indoctrination. And yeah. it, everybody gets up in arms about, you know, oh, you're, you're just, you're, you're scaremongering. But it truly is. And, and just as you said, when you're inserting yourself in between the child and the parent, in order to influence the way they think, you're no longer educating, mm. and and that's what and and the biggest part is to get kids back into school again. Mm. You know, we we have horrific attendance and in, in attendance in school. You know, that's just not right. I, I was just at the uh, the Groundswell Rally on um, Sunday, and um, a young guy came up and said, "Oh, you wouldn't happen to be related to Tony Costello?" And I went, "Yeah, that's my sister." And he was, she was, she taught him in 1990 and, you know, 33 years on, he's saying, oh, you know, she turned my life around. You know, those are the teachers we have to have. Like, those are the people that we, we don't, you know, they're great teachers out there. We just need to, like policing, we just need to get the hell out of the way and let them do their jobs as educators as law enforcement officers, it's that they they have the answers and the and the, the actions. And the first thing we do is get the kids back into school again mm. and do everything we can to make it so that the kids are back in the classroom and the parents are accountable when the, the kids aren't in school. And and yeah, you know, there's a lot of kickback on, you know, oh, so you're gonna prosecute parents no, we're going to make it so it's not acceptable for you to stand back and let your kids not go to school. Whatever we need to do, that's what you have to do, is you have to get the parents back involved in the kids' lives. And that's what I see. It's not complicated. It's just like you said, it's the back-to-basic stuff. Mm. So, I was just going to talk. go back to the agenda mm. because we keep talking about equality in our schools. So part of the rationale for the gender ideology in our schools is equality. But at one of my public meetings, I had 
a lady from Inside Out come along who tried to interject, but I spoke to her afterwards. And I said to her, if it's all about equality, then why isn't there equality for all? Why isn't there equality for the disabled? So according to Inside Out's own website, 0.8% of the population is transgender, but one in four people suffer a disability. So I did say to her, where is the one-month celebration for my son and children like my son? Why is my son meant to attend school for 38 weeks per year but only attends for 33 because he gets kicked out of school for mainstream exams, even though he's in a special needs class. And they use the word equality for that as well. It just is illogical. So if we're going to have equality, then it should be equality for all, Everyone. not a small section of society. Are they still using the word equality? Because I noticed that there's been lots of switching from equality to equity, and it's been this little linguistic sleight of hand. Have you noticed that? The equity discussion is that you can never argue against it because if there's any imbalance, then everything you say is, you know, is justifiable because we can show that there's an imbalance of outcome. Mm. But the point with it is that we actually we we're not we're not actually interested in equity of outcome because if we were interested in equity of outcome we would be doing more practical things to make sure that the opportunity exists for all rather than worrying about the you know the the, the fringe little frilly things that actually don't deliver any better outcomes it's about creating the aspirational quality of opportunity and the drive to achieve and reach your potentials but you know we know that you can have the same family. I'm one of six kids and we have a completely diverse range of outcomes across six kids and we grew up in the same household. If we can't get the equity of outcome in the same family, what's the yeah. chance of it doing in society? And I always argue that if you want you know, equity of outcome, then the only way to achieve that is remove any freedom of choice. That as a parent, you have no choice. You have to do this. You have to do this with your kids. And it'll just be a race to the bottom mm. because as and soon as you force that, we will have a race to the bottom. We will have the, it's the racism of low expectations. It's, yeah. It, that's you, exactly the strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with Casey. I attended the United Nations Advancing Agenda 2030 last week online and they were speaking about equity a lot. And so I actually put it to Bloomfield. How was it equitable? Because he kept talking about equity of vaccines. How is it equitable that they brought in the mandates for a vaccine that did not stop transmission when they knew that? But of course, they wouldn't answer any of my questions. So I agree, it's actually narrowing things down. Mm. One last question before we wrap up. And that is in regards to policy, because you guys have got a lot of policy. And it's very, very difficult to get a cut through in terms of different policy. We've talked about lots of things here. What is something for each of you that is a policy that you have currently with New Zealand First that you would like to bring into the House into a coalition negotiation that most listeners or Kiwis will not know about? So it's a sort of what a little sleeper hit as it were. So I'll start with you, Kirsten. What do you think out there is sort of the pol a policy that New Zealand First has that we'd really love to see get across the line that will make really huge, meaningful change for Kiwis, but they may not be aware of? I've got two favourites. My first one is having a full independent COVID inquiry with no politicians involved so that we actually get independent people looking at it 
and getting recommendations that people can trust. So we're not having politicians influence the terms of reference. Also getting out of UNDRIP as well, which is basically the foundation for co-governance. Mm-hmm. What about you, Erica? Yeah, I agree with um, Kirsten on, on UNDRIP. I think that's quite important. As, and as well as the COVID um, inquiry, I think is, is is one of the most important um, policies that we're putting through. Um, but I also, when we look at the cost of living, I mean, I think holding that banking inquiry uh, in New Zealand just to see actually what what's going on and see if we can start to bring those, you know, that uh, percent down a bit in the banking industry, I think would be helpful alleviating some of these high cost mortgages and and rent. Yeah. And then for me personally, I would really like to see us um, roll out that final tranche of learning support coordinators. I know that that would have a huge impact for schools and especially for um, you know, children like ours who have um, additional learning needs, then I guess another one I would hope to see if we've got the money for it is the introduction of um, health aids, which specifically deal with students who have health needs, don't necessarily have learning needs, but they just need assistance with health considering they might have, you know, diabetes. I would I would love to see that policy of ours come through. Right. What about you, Casey? Well, I got I got stolen out of my undrip one, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I think that the one that, I'm really passionate about is that the in terms of our record of investing in the provinces, but the protection of our our sovereign identity as a nation across the board, that includes our sovereign independence in terms of our financial capability. So the things like protecting TY Point, reopening Marsden Point, that the stuff that will make us operate with autonomy and with confidence as we face the world and that we are not going to be dictated to from international organisations and through international treaties. You know, that's the benefit of our democracy. We have ultimate parliamentary sovereignty and that needs to be protected and it's been eroded and, and that's the part that I I really appreciate where New Zealand First is standing on is to, to, to reclaim that position. So unlike so many of the other parties, you actually do what you say on the tin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I want Get to thank you to so- it. <laughs> I want to thank Watch you out. so much um, for coming along. And I hope this has been helpful for people out there who have been still really worrying about where they're going to put that party vote. Uh, so this has been uh, Kirsten Murphy, Erica Harvey and Casey Costello from New Zealand First. Thank you very, very much for coming along. I do appreciate your time this morning. And don't disappear here on Counterculture. Coming up very shortly, in fact, just un momento, is Marty Gibson with Media Matters. We'll unpick this conversation plus many other conversations that have gone on in the media this week here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. I really enjoyed that conversation. It is just so good to see the quality and calibre of the candidates behind the leader, Winston Peters. I'd love to hear what your thoughts were on what these women had to say. Email me to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie and Marty Gibson joins me now for Media Matters. Busy old morning this morning, Marty. I had Trevor on first. We talked about Greens and and communism in China. And then you just caught the lovely ladies from New Zealand first, Kirsten, Erica and Casey. 
Yep. Some really interesting stuff there, I thought, from them, particularly around what people don't necessarily realise. Like one of the things that Erica talked about is the policies that they bought in 2017 that people just naturally assumed were Labour policies, which were actually New Zealand First policies, like mm. extra police on the beat, for example. Yeah, morning, really. And that's one of Winston's frequent complaints. And then I went to a political meeting on, I think it was Sunday night. Yeah, the Labour candidate was talking about the 1800 new police that they bought on. And the New Zealand First candidate was pointing to stuff going, it was me, it was me. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that, that's the woe of small parties who get into co coalition with the Purple Parties, as David Cunliffe called National and Labour, tellingly. Mm. That was a great interview. And I mean, you know, often people complain about Winston Peters and they complain, you know, that Reality Check Radio's pushing New Zealand first. I've spent a bit of time on Facebook saying to people, oh, you know, no one tells me what to say except that I can't use the F word. You know, my thing with that is my, my dawning understanding, I guess, was that the extent to which the decision to go with Labour was a caucus decision, it, it always gets put on him, but it's one of the most democratic political parties and the most tolerant of dissenting views as evidenced by um, national turfing out their candidates, act turfing out theirs at the slightest whiff of anything that is against the agenda set by the media. And New Zealand First just saying, after a shaky start, I have to say, I think initially his defence of some of the things that Kirsten had retweeted was a little shaky, but he certainly stiffened that up, which was a relief. But yeah, what great candidates there are in around that level. And I guess we're at that stage where it's two weeks out from the election. If you've got to have a choice between sticking your finger up to the man voting for a party that's not polling above 2%, getting in those three candidates, say, and I mean, you know, also um, Lee Donoghue, who's consistently impressed me throughout this campaign. Well, that was one of the things that Erica said. You know, she felt that at 10% you would get yeah. all those three plus Lee. It is at that sort of pointy end of the wedge now. And certainly there is a disquiet, I think, amongst the voting public. They're not seeing or getting what it is that they want from the Purple Parties. And they're also starting to see the cracks appear with, the likes of ACT, well, if the polls are anything to, to go by. So voting is open now. I haven't voted yet. I'm kind of inclined to think I might wait until until Saturday week. Have you voted yet? Yeah, I did vote yesterday. Oh, look at you. I had, my, I had my voting card thrust into my hand and I was pushed towards the polling booths by my wife. Um, I probably would have waited until election day just to just to be a little tease, but I did. I, I don't really have a lot of options here. Because mm. I want, as I've often said, I want that discussion. I want dissenting views to to be able to be hashed out reasonably in a public forum again. It makes me deeply uncomfortable. I said this to the National Party candidate at the meeting. I said, aren't you a bit uncomfortable with the homogeneity of views that are allowed in uh, National at the moment? And does it bother you at all that you've been selected as someone who'll just go along with that. For example, that the idea that zero carbon by 2050 is not only a good idea, but it's going to be good for New Zealand. And it doesn't it stick in your throat having to agree with that. And, you know, I mean, he's campaigning, so I said, yeah, but who knows what he actually thinks. Mm. And I had a talk to the Labour candidate as well. It was a lovely woman. 
you know, really pleasant lady. And I hope I can get together and have a chat after the election and maybe look at uh, she's not high enough on the list to get in. There are a number of Labour people that may not be high enough on the list to get in. Grant Robertson probably isn't going to be high enough on the list to get in. But yeah, I mean, you know, I said to her, I said to all the candidates I spoke to, have you gone and seen River of Freedom? Why not? You really should. You know, the fact you haven't is negligent of you. And also said, you know, have you been keeping an eye on the increases in deaths, the decreases in live births, the increase in disability that we've seen that's kind of mirroring what's happening in the rest of the world. And they're just, and I guess, you know, there's always that danger in a bubble, but they just were not, it wasn't on their radar. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's, it must be comforting to believe your television. Mm, and it is, you know, look, we all are guilty in one way or another of being susceptible to fall into an echo chamber because an echo chamber is a re it's like a warm cozy blanket isn't it you're surrounded by people that like you and tell things tell things that you want to hear and it is it is a comforting thing but actually we're at the point now and I think a number of us have learned that actually we need to live dangerously a little bit and it's because we've all gone and confined ourselves to those echo chambers and Labour have done it, National have done it, ACT have done it, that they're not hearing all of these other views. These views have all been fragmented and popped off into little spaces. I mean, I, I keep yeah. looking for the whole opposing views, Marie. You know, I read the paper, I'm, be, I'm constantly told that what I believe is misinformation. And I keep waiting to hear, well, what is misinformation? Is it misinformation that the Ministry of Statistics figures have live births decreasing by 28% since 2018? Is that misinformation? Why is that misinformation? And so on. That's, I guess, enough to make people think, oh, I don't want to believe misinformation and put them off the trail. That's exactly what it is intended to do. And I think legacy media as a whole has become its own echo chamber. They have a very, very confined set of unspoken rules. What is verboten and what is not verboten? And this is what they'll talk about. And here I was expecting, naively, that two weeks out from voting closing, that we would have some really good meaty discussion in the newspaper about what those issues are, really diving down into them. And I could not believe the utter twaddle that was there, and I even resorted to watching the political shows on, on Saturday and Sunday. Good night, Mother Brown, really. Oh, well, I mean, that was a that was a watershed moment, that Jack Tame interview, wasn't it, with Winston Peters? Oh, good and, night. And, and it ended in Winston Peters saying, I'm going to make a point of trying to be Minister of Broadcasting. But then it was followed up with that just soft interview with James Shaw, and yeah, no, do you think if Winston, if it had been revealed in the last couple of months that Winston Peters had lied publicly, claiming to have a degree that he hadn't completed, and then inexplicably been able to go on to do a postgraduate qualification, do you think that Jack Tame wouldn't have asked a question about that if it was at Winston Peters? It, that just disappeared without trace, like the NIWA data that indicated was storms were getting less frequent. It was the juxtaposition between the two interviews that yeah. was so jarring. The transition between the two, Tame obviously went into his interview with Peters with a very clear objective in mind, which was to get that gotcha soundbite. And he was mm. like a fox terrier. Yeah, and he just, 
oh, yeah, and he just would not let go. And, I mean, what did Peter say at one point? Calm down and take a Valium. And then you go to the fellatiary effort that uh, followed on afterwards. It was like, what? Mm. I couldn't believe it. Imagine if you had gone after Jacinda Ardern like that or, or Grant Robertson and said, hey, Grant, you've borrowed $100 billion. You know, if you gave me $100 billion, I could lift tens of thousands of children out of poverty. You know, I mean, you, you're saying you've done all this. It's easier to do that if you borrow $100 billion. It's much harder to achieve as little as you've achieved with that amount of money. I don't know how you do it. Where'd you learn it? Neither do I. Now, I'm going to dive in. We'll dive into the sure stuff in a wee bit. I just want to cover off broadly some of the other elements and one of the other themes first before we do. And that was, and both you and I mentioned it, I just couldn't get over There was no talk of really major issues. Uh, the Labor rolled out the rainbow policy. Yeah, more turns and glitter. Excellent. It turns out that uh, if Chris Hipkins uh, was a transvestite, his name would be Lippy Chippy. Lippy Chippy. There you go. And he'd be, the, he'd be a dancing queen. He's got his own issues at the moment. I mean, we've tested positive to COVID. And then I heard or I saw an, uh, an article that he's bewildered. He's a little bewildered because he's kept up to date. He's had all his boosters. He's been a good and boy. the flu injection. He just doesn't quite know how he got it. I've not. I know uh, quite a few vaccinated people who've, who've had COVID more than once. I don't know anyone who's unvaccinated who's had it more than once. Just saying. Yeah. Well, what I want to know is who still does rat tests? Are they still a thing? Obviously, they must be for a certain I subset can't of people. Them too. <laughs> Anywho, so the other theme was in terms of the Susan or sort of a threat, a veil of these poor politicians who, who are all under now the spotlight, the pressure of the snowflakes is beginning to manifest itself. And there were all these pieces and articles talking about the the threats that they were suffering under. I mean, you had, uh, I mean, we talked about it the other week, Willow Jean Prime having verbal abuse slung at her at a Northland or Whangarei yeah. meeting and security guard being concerned. The Greens made me laugh. Uh, they complained of verbal racism and misogynistic comments. To Pasi Māori, abuse of note and apparent, apparently a home invasion slash vandalism, depending on which story slash you read. Damage fence. Slash damage fence. The Nats claim, Luxon claims that they have got had made police reports around gangs, burglaries and a dog attack. The Labour have also said one of their candidates have, has claimed that they were slapped. Uh, in New Zealand first, well, no one has piped up about any issues there other than the survey results that came out, business results survey, and they were saying that New Zealand First voters appeared to be the ones that were most fed up with what well, was going they on didn't in the country just at the say that. They said there was a ridiculous article by Craig Hoyle in the Sunday Star Times. He basically was saying that this is the longest bow I've seen, actually. He said, in another twist, New Zealand First supporters report more nightmares than other voters on average, although Wilson cautions that it's not statistically significant. Nightmares are actually quite an important experience in the context of well-being. Nightmares can be both a predictor of mental distress and a symptom of it. Unsurprisingly, people who report frequent nightmares also re report poorer quality sleep in general. Poor old New Zealand First supporters, eh? Again, the column inches. This is the sort of thing that could be written by AI, isn't it? Maybe that's why the, the news is getting harder and harder to read. Maybe. Oh, well, it could be. I mean, there has been concerns in newsrooms that journalists would be replaced by 
AI. Well, there've been various rumours rattling around, haven't they? There has been, of, been various uh, rumours rattling around this week. Yeah. I got a Twitter ban for making that learned code joke once about reporters getting laid off because they said, well, you know, these factory workers are just going to have to learn to code. And so when they got laid off, everyone made learned code jokes and they were very offensive. And I don't take any joy in people losing their jobs particularly, but actually I do. So, okay, this is going to be a nice segue. Did you hear about the Epsom debate this week? No. Right. So in the Epsom debate this week, because of course the the gloves have come off and there's no cup of tea deal anymore in Epsom. So National are actively going for the seat with David yep, Seymour as is, yep, yep. and as is David Seymour's put Brooke Van Velden over with Intamaki with Simon O'Connor. However, in the debate, uh, a huge applause was held for David Seymour when he got up and he made the claim that he felt that if ACT got their policy across the line in coalition uh, negotiations, that 15,000 public service uh, workers will be out of their jobs by Christmas. And that got quite a rapturous applause. Now, that upset the Labour candidate, Camilla Balich, quite a bit. And she then got up and said quite, you know, quite minorly, actually, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't be applauding that number of people. These people have families. They have jobs. And you're saying that these people, you know, it's not good that you're applauding these people could be out of work by Christmas. And it's like, well, Camilla, that's a bit rich coming from you as a Labour Party candidate, isn't yeah. it, darling? Considering it was around this time that mm, a similar number to this across multiple industries in 2021 were faced with exactly the same issue and you guys didn't Those public servants made their choice. You know, they didn't have to blow out the expenditure on the public service by 80% and then deliver less for it. Oh, Bruce Cottrell made the very, very, very good point. And, and I thought this when I was watching the leaders' debate. Luxon should have made the point, hey, look, the private sector is short-staffed and people who have had a career in the public sector have got very good skills around uh, processes and they've got good, often good ethics about what you do and what you don't do, it's probably quite good to flush some people who have had that experience in the public sector through the private sector. And Bruce Cottrell made that point very well. He said, instead of an argument about whether or not national's policies imply public sector job losses, how about a discussion on what those government employees could do, be doing instead? Across this country, we're desperately short of people. We need teachers, nurses, truck drivers, and builders. We need hospitality workers and more people in retail. Despite almost 200,000 people on the job seeker benefit, I know of companies with 40 or 50 vacancies. Mm, but and, you know why, um, the, you know why the, that will never happen, though? The feed that they're given in that trough is so great that actually being faced with the reality of retail sector, of all of those other jobs, that actually the people in the real world... <laughs> <laughs> where yeah. you all live, you, it's, you it's a different story. You $200,000 a year for that skill set, buddy, because we oh. can't make $400,000 or $600,000 from what you do, exactly. which used to be being able to spend $2 million and not have any accountability for results. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. So that's why it will never happen. Bruce Cottrell was more generous than me. He said, instead of cutting them loose, how about we keep paying them for a year or more while they learn new skills? It's like, yeah, Bruce, come on. 
He did also go on as well and talk about investment in the oil and gas industry. And this was interesting. I had, I'd missed this in previous news reports. Recent released research tells us that Guyana, a small country in the northern part of South America, with just 800,000 people, is the world's fastest growing economy in 2023. Their projected growth rate is 38% for the year, according to recent GDP forecasts by the International Monetary Fund. Their secret? Oil production and export. On the surface, it would appear that they have a natural source base to pl- and game to play with. As much as Greenies would hate it, rebuilding our ability to generate oil, gas and coal revenue as a potential game changer for our economy in long term. Yeah, instead of importing dirty Indonesian coal. The tough thing about the profoundly anti-human nature of the zero carbon agenda, you know, that whole you are the carbon they want to reduce kind of uh, thing, is that most I guess the level of ingratitude about the uh, students who protested all the while, you know, holding their oil and gas manufactured phones, and they've got no idea how much energy they use in a developed economy. You know, we use so much. It comes back down to that idea of whitewater kayaking. You know, you've got to paddle towards uncertainty to maintain forward momentum and give you maneuverability. If we just are dead in the water because we've cut our access to energy, we're um, very vulnerable to the fickle winds of fate. You know how I said last week I've been reading The Sad Guide to Happiness? I got to a section this week and it was talking about the importance of having headwinds, basically, in your life to obtain happiness. So if you get everything all your own way and everything is safe and everything is awesome, that ultimately will be detrimental to your happiness. You've got to have, as you said, those rapids down the river to potentially navigate to allow you to to create resilience, which in turn helps you appreciate what it is that you do have, which will then lead you to happiness. I've got a theory about this, Marie. Excellent. We talk a lot about the impact on climate from our emissions of CO2. I think that's vastly overstated. I think what's vastly underrated and underexamined is the detrimental effect that having easy energy without a corresponding improvement in our moral compass, the effect that that's had on uh, the human condition generally. You know, we're just used to having this comet tail of plastic shit streaming out behind us and just carelessly throwing things in the rubbish. And, you know, one day we'll probably look at glass bottles and just be astonished that we used to just use them once and chuck them away. And it's also allowed a an alienation from nature that I think is really starting to bite at us now, it's separated us from knowing what the phase of the moon is and what's ripe at different times. So rather than celebrating, you know, the arrival of apples and enjoying their sweetness, we just eat whatever in a kind of a mindless way that's very unappreciative. And I think it's it's really been detrimental to our souls. Mm. Well, it's that, dis- yeah, as you said, a disconnection to the cycle of life, isn't it? Mm. And I think by reconnecting with that consciously, a lot of the emissions and the waste would take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, I guess, tokenistic things that have been done, I think an, an OIA, an Official Information Act request that really should be done is uh, on any of their trips overseas, have any of uh, Labour's top politicians or government officials asked any of the top five countries for 
dumping plastic into rivers in the ocean, were any of those countries officially asked to stop doing it? And if not, where does that leave us when we're holding a paper bag with the ass fallen out of it, looking at all our plastic-wrapped groceries rolling around on the pavement? Yeah, there are hypocrisies everywhere. I'm going to cycle back to those interviews on the weekend because I really, I mean, there's a reason why I don't watch them very often because I just get really grumpy. Uh, I'd also watch, I mean, the Rebecca Wright one with Winston, gee whiz, the head-to-head between Jan Tanetti and Erica Stanford. I thought Erica shone, Mm. absolutely shone. It shows why she is one of the rising stars within the National Party, at least. Jan Tanetti, I mean, she's all over the show at the best of times. lunch, didn't she? It was literally like the year 13 seventh former sitting there trying to have a discussion with a petulant toddler who wouldn't sit on the mat. Mm. It was bad. Anywho. I'll tell you what I really enjoyed about that interview is that she is appropriately annoyed at the enormous and just terribly sad cost of that failure of the education system. It was good to see that passion there. Mm. Yeah. And she was also very focused on outcome as well, because as we know, Labor is measuring its success by what it spends, not measuring its success on its outcomes. And she was very focused on that. The reality of it is, is this education fix, this has been something that's been deteriorating for a long time. You've brought it up before around the unionisation of our education system, as I think one of the big issues. Well, and also the other thing I like to bring up is the potential that it suits politicians just fine having a population that's incapable of critical thinking. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, that, and that's the really horrifying, uh, maybe long bow to draw, but, you know, if you really wanted to fix it, you'd prioritise it and fix it. When you're whining about poor health outcomes for Māori, ultimately you're talking about poor education outcomes. If you're talking about high rates of incarceration, ultimately you're talking about the failure of the education system as well. Yeah. Once I'd finished watching the Winston interview with Jack Tame, I then moved on to James Shaw. And as I was recovering from the juxtaposition between the two interviews, thinking, good grief, you know, am I the only person seeing this? This little clangor about six minutes in pops out from James Shaw, and I actually had to go back on replay and re-listen to it because, as you often say, it's the things they say out loud. Yeah. I was like, sure, no, surely he didn't say that. So this this is, this is what was said. What advice have you had about the likelihood of capital flight of, of wealthy people or business operators, entrepreneurs taking their money to other countries? Yes, yeah, so we factored in 25% avoidance into our wealth tax calculation Treasury, when they did this work for Grant Robertson over the summer, factored in about 15% from memory. So we've actually factored in a much more conservative... Sorry, to be clear, I'm talking about capital flight. I'm talking about people who say, you know what, actually, if we've got a wealth tax in New Zealand, we've got a 33% corporate tax rate, we're going to go elsewhere. We're going to take our money elsewhere. That is avoidance, right? That that is avoidance. No, but I mean, they they permanently move elsewhere. They They go and invest in other countries where they have lower tax rates. Yeah, that's... What advice have you had about that? Well, that, that is avoidance. So Treasury factored in about a 15% rate for that. Mm. Uh, we factored in 25%. So. Yep, yep. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and if it's you... Just, you know, this is where they've got that socialist bullshit where one person's just like another person. And so if you lose 15% of these people, well, it's just like, you know, there's plenty more. I mean, 
as I've said before, I know a lot of really wealthy people and they're pretty singular. You don't necessarily want to be them, but you can't help but admire their just laser focus and determination and slight mental illness. So for listeners, if you were listening to that and you were thinking, what? What is he going on about? So to paraphrase, essentially, if the Greens get their way and they get their wealth tax across the line, and there are two parties strongly advocating for this wealth tax, one is the Greens, the other is Te Party Māori, right? They have factored in that in their belief, 25% or one in four people that fit into that category will just leave, get up and leave New Zealand. The consequences of that are massive. Now, the nice thing is, is our little friend Chanel provided us with some figures. So obviously he'd been talking to the, the green PR machine. His entire piece was based around the wealth tax. And he, I mean, he talks about New Zealand being one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Our country has enough wealth to ensure everyone has the necessities, yet we don't. That is the result of political choices that overwhelmingly favour the wealthy to garner more wealth while people in lower incomes pay higher taxes. The wealthiest 10% of New Zealanders hoard, hoard, hoard. 50% of New Zealand wealth, while the bottom 50% only have 2%. The wealthiest families pay a medium effective tax rate of 9.4% compared to 20.2% for middle wealth New Zealanders. Conservative parties have portrayed attempts to legalise wealth tax as jealousy. I'm not jealous. I'm angry. And I, like many other students like me, pay a higher proportion of our pay to tax and barely get by while New Zealanders have become a tax haven for the wealthiest. Now, this is where the thresholds. I know. So, this is where the thresholds come in. What exactly does does wealthy mean? He Mm. tells us. The Greens are campaigning to introduce a 2.5% wealth tax on net assets. Couples who jointly own assets will pay wealth tax on assets above 4 million threshold and less mortgages and other debts. Those individuals' assets above 2 million. In the current inflationary climate, if you're a homeowner or even if you're, say, someone like a, say, at four million, if you have been fiscally prudent, you own your own home, you may also have a couple of rental properties, depending on where they are and they get valuations, that net four million as a couple or two million as an individual is not a big stretch. What happens if you're actually a shareholder or an owner in a business and you're self-employed? How does that get valued? And well, James Shaw got asked that as well, didn't he? He's, he's he did. Like, well, you know, we've got to nail that down and work out who's owning the trusts and the trusts. The, yeah, the trusts. Yes, exactly. And he was very, very, he was very opaque on this. Now, this is my concern, right? This is my concern. I have then also seen the numbers, ASM's put out numbers we talked about several months ago about the flight that we have currently in the medical system and the number of doctors and people leaving our medical system in droves to go elsewhere, mostly across the ditch, because they get paid better, the conditions are better, the system is nowhere near as broken as what it is here. Can you imagine what will happen to a lot of those doctors that haven't taken the communist slash socialist pill and it will be amazing how a bit of pill that can be when, you know, they're still doing it for the system. They still have belief. They're still there trying yeah. to fight it. And then it's they get pinged the even money. further. It's not even the money often, is it? It's it's the morale. Oh, just every single time. 
you know, you end up with gulags and you end up with people getting executed because they wear glasses and, you know, it, it, and you can, the thing I've, I've said on more than one occasion is as a keen student of the history of human awfulness to other humans, the thing that unsettles me most is I can hear it in these guys. And that's even before we get into the aspect of philanthropy, which, you know, so many things in New Zealand rely on the generosity of others. So this station being one of it, I mean, we, we're built on small donors by the people for the people. And, um, and it's without that generosity. time by us as well. Yeah, and, and, you know, so there's... So much goodness out there. But, you know, you look at those key people in in that top group, that top grouping, they are the people that fund the arts. Well, they pay 90% of the tax, don't they, the top 25 taxpayers? I think the top 25% of, of families are net taxpayers plus the, it's it's only the top twenty five percent of families that that pay more than their actual share of tax that they consume. So when when these guys are talking about how stingy these wealthy people are, they're talking about people who pay a hundred percent of the tax. Nearly, if they're talking about, well, probably it's it's not a hundred percent if it's um, limited to people with net wealth over two million dollars, but it's a pretty high proportion. But see, that net wealth over $2 million, that's the additional tax wealth tax rate that they're going to get on that. That doesn't include the 39% that they're already getting pinged by for being over, what is it, $70,000 a year? Yeah, well, they're looking at their assets. I mean, it's a regressive thing because socialism is a tacit admission that the government's pants at running companies once they um, nationalise them. They pretend to pay the workers and the workers pretend to work kind of thing. So socialism's going downstream from that and standing outside the factory gate with a cudgel demanding menaces like a mafia don. And so what you're hearing with this, well, we wants as we wants as the capital is a regressive move to think, well, that's our capital. It's It's a very communist impulse. Yeah. But he's probably too thick to actually understand that. I doubt very much whether he's uh, read the Gulag Archipelago or get cross even having to take that guy seriously. I mean, they have been exceptionally conspicuous by their absence. Part of the reason I watched the interview is I knew he was going to be on. And I thought, great, because they've been missing in action this whole yeah. campaign. It's felt like that to me. Two little satellite dish faces beaming self-righteously out at us. And, and then that's what comes out of his mouth. And I was thinking, oh, now I kind of know why you hide. Yeah. Now, I did actually feel a little bit sorry for Christopher Luxon this week because the media coming out claiming that he has pulled out of the stuff leaders debate when it's kind of like, ah, uh, no. No, I think you'll find that the Hipkins is out because of the COVID rescheduling in the final week of campaigning. Well, I also offered them a debate between the deputy leaders and they didn't want that, which is would have been good television watching Calvin Davis get eviscerated by uh, Nicola Willis. Willis. Yeah, no, she would have been. And I, yeah, all over our Calvin, bless his heart. He's a debater our Calvin is not. Also, too, Winston popped his hand up and said, well, you know, if you've rescheduled a date, I'll be there. Chris can't make it. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go tomorrow. No, no takers on that. And then I see uh, our favourite libertarian not, uh, David Seymour, decided if you can't beat him, copy him. 
and announced that he would be open to public submissions for an expanded Royal COVID Commission inquiry. The guy, and I pointed this out on uh, on the political panel last week, whenever he talks about the benefit of having a strong economy, the first thing out of his mouth is always, we get better pharmaceuticals, which is pretty far down on the list of reasons I li- I'd like the economy to be working better. I'd, I always wonder, you know, if that somehow feeds into his um, asinine attitudes towards the uh, mandatory experimental gene therapy and, you know, whether that's somehow a factor in his sudden volunteering to manage um, the terms of reference. Talking about Luxon being persecuted before, you know, there's this ongoing annoyance that I'm not uh, not producing his um, workings for his tax. This is another thing I said on the political panel. I do wonder whether the reason he's not producing them is because he's expecting BlackRock to do in New Zealand what they've done in the States. And what they've done in the States is to buy up every family home they can get their hands on to the point where by 2030, it's projected at the current rate they're acquiring them, they're going to own something like 60% of family homes in the US. He is an avowed globalist, and I wonder if he's had a meeting where they've said, hey, look, we can put some money into an economy like that. Watch the space. Yeah, he has got that uh, foreign buyers policy on the table. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah, people, everyone's mystified, but he's saying, oh, no, it's going to work. That is one, I think, that potentially if New Zealand First is in coalition negotiations, that could be a handbrake policy. Well, that's going to screw his books because he's only $800 million ahead of Labour by 2026, isn't he? Mm. That was a very, very disconcerting part of Claire Trevitt's um, <sighs> article, Winston is the price you pay for your tax caginess in the Saturday Weekend Herald. And this is just a low watermark where she says they're not that different, but the way they're going to be better is finance spokeswoman Nicola Willis is trying to make it look better by saying finance minister Grant Robertson will blow his budget anyway. So she's saying, well, we might look the same, but they would have screwed up worse than us. So it's pretty low bar. Yeah. Yeah, the cynicism was dripping off the page. And there was a lot of cynicism from many of the regular opinion writers. I did I did actually laugh at the irony of Ali Moore going on about improving productivity by dropping everybody for a four-day week, and that was such a good idea. And this is after years of, I mean, she's trying to protect that laptop lifestyle, those girls running around on their lolo lemon, and, you know, having I mean, you know, so four-day weekends at home and because their productivity would be so much better. Well, if you get an extra day off, men spend 30% more time looking after their children and then in brackets, gender equality. Yeah. As if men don't want to look after their kids. Um, where do you want to go to next? Because I know where, I think we probably I think should. we both know where we're heading. Yeah, we both know where we're heading. So buckle on and listeners because it's not getting any more cheerful. Because both Marty and I did actually dive into the supplement sections. And when I say the supplementary sections, we're talking the magazines that come with these weekend papers. And there was an article that just screamed out at both of us, and it's called Draining the Disinformation Swamp by Joanna Wayne. Yeah, it's almost a press release for the disinformation project and quotes Kate Hanna as as if she's a serious commentator rather than a Marxist who with some sort of narcissistic problem where she does a lot of projection. 
we both read this and yeah, wasted a lot, used a lot of highlighter and and I had a lot of head shaking and and brow furrowing. Kate Hanna, founder and director of the Disinformation Project, and this is what I found interesting: founded in February 2020 to rebunk a tsunami of COVID-19 boulder dash that hit our shores before the virus did. Now, think about the timing of this, people, for just one second. February 2020 to pre-bunk. Gosh, they obviously had a crystal ball, didn't they? Yeah. And how did they know what was going to be boulder dash? Well, considering that every all of this was unfolding for everybody at the same time, the whole thing was a head shaker, wasn't it? I mean, I've, yeah, as you say, I mean, I've got a lot underlined here, but just that her absolute surety and the goodness of government is touching for its naivety, but alarming because that government's paying her to write this crap or at least project it all over the paper. And as you say, the projection's strong in this one because once you've decided to believe something, your self-identity is tied into that being a rational, sensible, intelligent decision. So you can't question it. The difference between her and us is I would love to be wrong. I look hopefully in a variety of areas for signs that I'm, I'm wrong and I hope and pray that I am. Whereas probably a worse realization for someone who has the comfort of believing their television to find the uh, awful truth. Well, it gets better just a little bit further down. In the final countdown to October 14 general election, Hannah talked to Canvas about how to discern fact from fiction by asking the right questions. Are you ready for this, listeners? Who holds the power? Who's telling the story? Who stands to benefit? Why should you trust them? and always ask who's funding it. That's right, Kate. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'll skip right to the end, although we'll come back to the middle. There was one good point she made, you know. She said, you know, when you're reading an article, it's worth, uh, if it's someone who's written with it about a range of diverse topics from climate change to vaccinations and chemtrails, it's unlikely they're an expert on all of these things. So she basically you know, advocates checking out your sources, which is sensible and which we do. And I mean, Cam Slater is always very good at that. Sometimes someone will post something on a chat group and he'll say, nah, that, that's not true. He's very good at checking sources generally. Yeah, we have to consciously go off platform and do some work for ourselves. But the work for herself is just to call anyone with a conflicting point of view disinformation malinformation and there's a helpful uh helpful little glossary at the bottom. end there yeah disordered thinking telling us the difference between disinformation misinformation and malinformation true information used with ill intent that's always an interesting one isn't it it is always an interesting one for those that sort of are trying to get their head around this because this is another one of those james Shaw. oh my goodness they said this out loud moments <laughs> this article is when you've been playing around in the cultural sandpit that I've been playing around with for all these years, one of the things that you soon learn is whatever it is that they aspire to be or accuse you of, they're guilty of themselves, right? Mm. It's one of the sort of golden rules of 
figuring out the double speak that goes on with all people like the Kate Hannas of the Disinformation Project. She talks about the polls, and as we mentioned before, there's all these stories about how fractious things are for our political candidates and the media being potentially attacked and, and how it's no longer safe for them out there. And, of course, they're completely missing the point that the reason you have all these people that are deeply unhappy is because, uh, funnily enough, you're not allowing them to ask those questions that Kate Mm. is so keen that they ask because the questions come with caveats, right? So this time there are three key factors. This is talking about the election. One is a significant increase in the likelihood of political violence with security issues. Party leaders who have been disrupted, where particularly candidates who are new, who are younger, who are women, who are rainbow community, who are Indigenous or people of colour, really need to be very careful about how they go about their campaigning. And this is a classic critical theory position. One, you must stand on your identity, and two, you must stake your claim in the oppression victimhood Olympics. Yeah. It's very important that you do that. Yeah, and she sort of talks about, you know, how Ardern had been the misogyny directed towards Jacinda Ardern, which went from everyday public misogyny, calling her Cindy and the pretty little communist, disinformation about her sexuality, blah, blah, blah. And then she basically characterizes anyone who disagrees with her as the disinformation community and says, and so instead of reasonable, thoughtful, respectful discourse, we're seeing adversarial, divisive discourse. And again, that's the point. So we're a disinformation community who are actually seeking to be adversarial, divisive. Yeah, very sensitive about anyone um, characterizing her side in any way but then just glibly and you know there's the the one that just jumped out at me was saying that ideas around an indigenous voice to parliament and co-governance were compared to conceptualizations from south africa around white genocide so she's basically calling the rape and murder and incitement to murder conceptualizations that's interesting she's also saying that you know people are saying that carbon policies are going to lead to poverty, and that's wrong. But that doesn't really tie in with Germany's 500% increase in power prices. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, this, oh God, I tell you what, I need to go to the chiropractor after this well, with the, num- the amount of head shaking I did. This is not targeting the left or right, but she never gets around to talking. She's saying it's not a left wing or right wing thing, particularly, although she does characterize. There's an international network of far-right organizations funding these. And then further down, she said a lot of the funding for the anti-campaign has come from conservative American or European organizations. So she's characterizing conservative organizations as far-right. Yeah, it was was really um, quite something. It really was quite something. One of the little sections I highlighted as well was, is disinformation being produced organically within New Zealand or is it largely imported? And she talked about the firehose approach, which was something that Steve Bannon, who was Trump's uh, chief strategist, used to talk about. At the same time, the distinction between state and non-state actors in disinformation spaces is a little spurious. It can have originated from a state actor, but the people disseminating it are groups and individuals who share those ideas. One of the things that's happening 
in this explosion of disinformation around the world is that there is now a framework for everyone. In the past, you might have heard someone talking or reading something online and just not identified with that person. Now, they are yoga mums and sensible sounding people alongside those who are much more radical. Anyone can be susceptible to the narrative from someone who looks and sounds and feels like us. The old feeler, man. And she never quite gets around to talking about that the left-right paradigm is is disappearing now. Yeah. And now it's down to establishment and anti-establishment. Nationalism, and globalism, yeah. And tyranny, nationalism and globalism. And that would have made the whole thing make sense. But she never goes there and she doesn't go there quite deliberately, I think, because she doesn't want to characterise herself as on the side of tyranny and globalism and... Um, but as you always say, it's always good to talk about the different facets and the colour of the glitter because at the end of the day, no one really wants to get into the shit sandwich that's underneath, do they? Mm. But, I mean, I wonder how much money she's still getting paid. Well, I know that they were doing some softball RFPs a while ago to keep them functioning and operating, which they did. I think there was an RFP around tracking disinformation within the election campaign. So hold hold on to your... There were some astonishing things formed during that whole early COVID thing where they were really driving the uh, mandates. I don't have the Māori name for it, but there was an ethics committee that was formed. And I had a real deep dive into that. It was astonishing what was in it because I, in all the information I scoured, there was no discussion about the ethics of giving pregnant women an experimental gene therapy that had been tested on 20 mice or given children the same thing by offering them electronics and KFC and suspending informed consent and body, bodily autonomy. There was nothing like that. The ethics committee talked about things like how there could be some pluses come out of the deterioration, the prosperity of New Zealand and that it might drive some equity. It had a guy who was a professor at Massey who'd been, who was an East German who was bemoaning how after the Berlin Wall fell, how people were competing with each other for who had the best consumer goods. And it was just introduced this sounding quite wistful for the days of the Stasi and the secret police and one in three Germans being an informer. It was astonishing. Yeah, there are many things that are very, very astonishing. On the good news front, there have been a few little cracks within the legacy space in terms of information leaking out there. And one of them I heard last week was Duncan Garner, bless his little heart, in his daily podcast that he does Monday through Friday. He interviewed Asim Mahotra. For a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people that live in our space, a lot of this information is not necessarily new. We, we are aware of it. We've read it. We've kept up to play with it. But, you know, a lot of the go-alongs, get-alongs haven't. They're busy. They're leading their lives. For them, the entire sort of element of COVID is, and is long since gone. But to hear somebody as credentialed as Dr. Mahotra, who was out here for the NZDSOS West conference, who's been doing a speaking tour around New Zealand, he chatted with Duncan before he left the country, to actually have a conversation of that calibre within the mainstream fold. And he spoke very, very clearly and concisely about all the wider issues, not just COVID, but the influence and effect that big pharma have on both regulation and what controls medications and access to most people, yeah. I thought was outstanding. 
Well, and the WHO, the extent to which it's pharma, it's funded by big pharma, is, it should give any anyone pause for thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, I said before, I, I saw that very sweaty interview where Garner was obviously a bit intoxicated. And, I, you know, you for all that I said before, well, you know, I'm not entirely unhappy that some of these people are losing their jobs. I don't feel necessarily as sympathetic to them as I would to the people who got mandated out of their jobs. And I look at some of those reporters and I think, man, you've added an extra bottle of wine to your daily routine just to kind of, just to shut that little voice down, the voice mm. of your conscience when you're just lying your ass off in a way that's hurting New Zealanders. Well, I just wondered, there was a little interaction between him and his producer and his producer said to him, oh, you know, how many boosters have you had? Where are you going to get your next booster? And he said, oh, no, I've only just had the two. He said, I saw Inga Tuigamala two weeks before he died, and then that was it for me. And he said, and then he followed it up a little later with, I I know people close to me who have died. See, imagine, Mm. as you said, he's in that situation where he's a few bells. The dawn in horror. Mm. It'll be so, so Again, again, it's, you know, it sounds like we're asserting something, but before, before we get to that, it really is just, hey, let's have the debate. When the debate's being squashed, that's the first problem. It's not not what's right or wrong uh, as a primary thing. I think it's worth just reiterating those words from Kate Hanna again to discern fact from fiction by asking the right questions. Who holds the power? Who's telling the story? Who stands to benefit? Why should you trust them? And always ask who's funding it. Yeah, she's rather hoisted her own petard there, isn't she, Busky? Now, do, you, do you want to do something else first before we go to feedback? Because well, we you know, the that. only thing I did bring up was that in this blizzard of paper, I did have that little article at the, at the back of the Sunday Star Times, experts ask if climate change is a bad thing for democracy. And this is, again, check the sources, check the funding. This is a, a, a innocuous-seeming article saying... The the intro reads, instability driven by climate change could threaten democracies in the future, even though representative governments are best equipped to provide solution, experts gathered at an annual conference have argued. So what it's basically saying is rising global temperatures and an acceleration of migration in parts of the world have sustained concerns that governments in the upcoming decades could turn more autocratic to retain control of increasingly scarce resources and deal with civil unrest. In the long term, that would be an a bad idea, argued Anne Florini, a fellow at the New American Political Reform Program. Now, I looked up Anne Florini, World Economic Forum, whether uh, she's a trustee or she, she has got her own little section in there. The uh, New America Political Reform Program, the director, Mark Schmidt, is a former director of the Soros Open Society. So what this is, this is kind of this pearl clutching. Oh, you know, if things get really bad with climate change, we're going to have to suspend democracy. So it's kind of saying it as in, oh, this could happen, it would be bad, but it's just kind of just warming people up. If you take Kate Hanna's advice, it's probably not in the direction she'd like you to take it. She'd, she'd probably far rather you said, well, if it's open society, if it's George Soros, well, it's probably all good. But yeah, there, there are plenty of things if you do put that lens on, think, well, who's funding it and to what end and what do they want because they tell you. Often the paper's full of all sorts of bowel-spasming, spine-chilling news. 
that's going to clash too badly with you. What's your good news article that having snorted MDMA off the Ranfurly shield and then broken it on someone's head, you can get it? God, I know. Uh, You haven't been caught, though, have you? (laughs) No, I haven't. No one suspected no, I haven't. No, my good news story, there was a great news story in, I can't remember, I'm not going to dive into the newspaper there, but I've got it, um, Night of the Dolphin. I spoke to Danger Rowe uh, um, last week, week before, last week, and it was a project that he's been working on. It is now out. It's in all the main places that you find podcasts, and it was a really lovely story about how they came together and um, everything that I talked about with Dane. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to Night of the Dolphin yet, it's 30 minutes of delightful joy and fun. And yeah, there was a story. Um, hold on. It was in. This is where it would be so handy to have just 5% of um, the $25 million or $27 million increase to Radio New Zealand's funding, eh? just so we could do show notes so people could uh, properly have the links. In the Sunday Star Times by Sir Pierre Mayron, it is why family, church, and friends are right, uh, key to roasting South Aucklanders, and it's all about, um, oh, right. yeah, how the Night of the Dolphin came about. So I was really thrilled to I see to see that. that. Happened. Read it. Yeah, having having spoken today, that was my sort of happy story for the week. Hey, the one last thing too before we get before we get to feedback, I don't do this very often, but in the Weekend Herald, since it's broadsheet. Um, I pulled out this very, very large full-page ad from the Taxpayers Union, Robbo's Removal Company. Yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? I know, I know. I think, uh, you know, sponsored by James Shaw and his 25% of avoidance. Anyway, I digress. Okay, feedback. 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 Okay, Marie and Marty, love your wisdom. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Owen. Uh, we're too soon old and too late wise. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Marie and Marty, from, 30, from a 34-year-old experience mandate teacher who has just managed to battle away back to the new permanent job at a new school while maintaining my personal integrity and personal freedom doing it. It's great to listen to you and have the freedom to listen to RCR go well from Andrew. Thank you, Good Andrew. for you, Andrew. To Marie, wanted to praise your Media Matters show with Marty. Love it. Just listened to a couple of recent replays. I heard Marty saying that he would keep speaking truth and make sure of his family's needs. Good call, Marty. And speaking of family, my wife, five kids, aged between 8 and 16 years, and I have so far avoided the needle. My oldest at 16 and is quite keen to get married ASAP, and as a concerned and caring dad, father-in-law, and potentially grandfather, do you think it is going to chase away too many potential in-laws if I ask them their VAC status? None in sight at the moment. But with the birth rates declining, is it too out there to try and hook up with the unjabbed? Really good question. Marie, it's slightly humour to say, but it's very serious also. Firstly, infertility, but also the nightmare scenario where DNA has been altered, hereditary DNA. Heap up the enlightening research and info that is Media Matters, and that's from Nick. Yeah, Nick, I know I've got teenage sons as well. I think they would be mortified to know if uh, we were talking about these things <laughs> too ahead of time. But I have to say with the cluster of friends that we've got, there is lots of discussion around uh, the potential futures and what may bring for them in the future. So thanks for that feedback. This is from Cheryl. I love your show. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It gives me hope. I was listening to one of your talks about River of Freedom. One of the things the film didn't capture so well, unfortunately, was the authentic Kiwi spirit. As a protester for 15 days, locals were taking people home to have hot showers, a bed, doing people's laundry, babysitting kids. 
there was an incredible amount, like massive amount, of donations of clothing, bedding, blow-up mattresses, tents, dark tape, hot water bottles, wet weather gear, whatever someone needed, it would turn up. My neighbour in our camping area came back from the admin tent with a roll of carpet so we could make a little lounge to have breaks since all of us were sleeping in our cars. Still have so many heartfelt stories that needed to be captured. I get the impression that there was so much footage they were drowning in it with that film. I really oh, do. It would have been, yeah. What the that person saying is is dead right. There's a a, sp- a Kiwi spirit and probably a human spirit of helping each other. And uh, as I've often said, it, it's it's weakened to the point of almost being snuffed out by the government growing like cancer between us. Mm. I remember reading a, uh, an article about a book about the Waiwika Gorge where my great great or great grandparents had a farm where my grandfather grew up. And there was a story about some guy getting caught, uh, one of the Traffords, getting caught, you know, in a torrential downpour and, uh, you know, there no phones, but said, oh, you know, called into the Gibsons and, uh, you know, they gave me a bed for a night and fed me and sent me along in the morning in a fresh set of clothes. And, you know, it's just what you did. And, and imagine what we could do if we didn't have that giant vampire squid of government, let's quote the... Uh, that memorable phrase in the Rolling Stone magazine, jabbing its blood funnel and anything that smells like money wrapped around a human face. There you go. Now, this is from Shelley. Marty's quips on Ms. Vaz's haircuts and views are becoming a weekly feature in Media Matters. It brings lightness and humours to the show. Keep up the good work from Shelley. We haven't actually said much about old Darth Vance this week because she sort of, I think she lost a mojo. She sort of was jump, jumping down the, um, oh dear, Luxie has to talk to Winston Yeah, well, I mean, she also changed her photo (laughs) and softened her fringe in quite a coquettish kind of way and smiled. You know, it's a frequent admonishment that men shouldn't say to to women, oh, come on, love, give us a smile. But, uh, you know, she did and it's working for her. I know. It's it's softer, it softened the Darth Vance. So there we go. Gosh, thank you again, as always, uh, Marty, joining me for Media Matters. And, of course, next week is going to be a big one, last one before the election and then of course we'll be into the post-mortems after that. Where does the time go? Fun Time flies when you're having fun. Thank you again. I hope you have a good rest of week. Yeah, same to you Maria and thanks everyone for listening. It's great to know that there are people out there uh, getting something out of it and uh, God defend New Zealand. Yeah, and remember if you want to send us some feedback, 2057 is the text number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Woke News of the Week is here next on RCR. Matewa. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Costco goes for gold. Online inventory of gold bars is being snapped up by customers in the United States. At present, Costco offers one ounce, 24 karat gold bars from two suppliers on its website. The gold bars are being sold for around 2,000 US dollars. In an interview with CNBC, Jonathan Rose, co-founder of Genesis Gold Group, said the sale of gold bars was a good promotional strategy for Costco, appealing to a certain demographic among its shoppers. They've done their market research. I think it's a very clever way of getting their name in the news, and they've had great publicity, he says. There is definitely a crossover of people living off the land, being self-sufficient, believing in your own currency. That's the appeal to gold as a safe haven as people lose faith in the US dollar. 
He pointed out that the safe haven aspect of investing in gold remains strong given the economic challenges in the United States, including regulatory pressure on banks, inflation and concerns about the commercial real estate market. As yet, no word on whether gold will be offered here at Costco New Zealand. Putting in the plough. A pub in Devon, England, faced controversy after it playfully changed the name of a classic ploughman's lunch to Plough Persons to acknowledge the women who were farmers in the region. The pub's owner, Dickie Harrison, saw it as a light-hearted gesture to recognise both male and female farmers without any political agenda. However, the name change quickly went viral on social media, sparking a debate. Some people were angry, calling it woke and unnecessary, while others praised the pub for acknowledging female farmers. Critics argued that tradition should be respected, and some even expressed concerns about the future changes to holidays like Mother and Father's Day. Mr Harrison explained that the change was meant to be a bit of fun, and it gave a nod to women in farming without causing offence. The dish itself is a classic plowman's lunch featuring Devon cheese, ham, pickled onions, chutney and sourdough bread. The controversy drew mixed reactions, with some vowing to boycott the pub while others expressed support and admiration for the pub's gesture. Ultimately, the situation has highlighted the ongoing discussions about gender-neutral language and the balance between tradition and inclusivity within society. Masculinity isn't for wussies. Kevin Sorbo has branded Hollywood men bumbling useless idiots with a misunderstanding of masculinity. The Hercules and the Legend Journeys actor, 65, has claimed that he has been shunned by Hollywood for his conservative opinions last month and wrote a controversial new essay for Fox News in which he blasted woke Hollywood. Taking particular aim at Timothy Chalamet, 27, and Billy Porter, 54, both fashion darlings of the red carpet with a fondness for androgynous attire. Sorbo observed that the current fad in fashion is a masculinity crisis. In his article on modern-day males, he also insisted that feminists have won when men give in to their base desires, such as drink, drugs, video games, and porn. Sorbo says it doesn't really matter what end of the masculinity spectrum you fall on. If you're a victim to your own base desires, the feminist culture has won. You're exactly the kind of wussy man they think that you want to be. In recent years, he's been a keen purveyor of Christian beliefs and conservative opinions, something he alleges alleges has led to his cancellation. He went on, everywhere you look, bold, confident, self-assured females, upstage passive men who recede quietly into the background. Into the basement, into the past, fathers in particular have become the butt of every woke Hollywood jab, the bumbling useless idiots who contribute nothing to their families or communities, but sacrifice themselves as the objects of ridicule. What are your thoughts on Sorbo's position in regards to masculinity of men in our current culture? 2057 is the text and inbox realitycheck.radio is the email address. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
Thank you to everybody for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Have you downloaded the app yet? Everyone I've spoken to absolutely love it. I love it. It's available now in the app stores, both for iOS, for Apple and Android. And of course, best of all, it is free. We still have got more great content here on Reality Check Radio. And I don't know about you, but I can start to feel the winds of change in the air. So I thought I'd leave you with a little Tracy Chapman and I'll see you all next week for more counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Have a great week.